Today's episode of Pivot Points is made possible by listeners like you. If you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please remember to leave us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our community. This podcast explores the dynamics at play when we make the critical decisions that determine the course of our lives. We all make most decisions on limited information. Sometimes the outcomes are great, other times they're not. Regardless, there are lessons to be learned in the process. I hope this episode gives all of you a new perspective, whether you're currently serving, are a veteran like me, or regardless of background, are just interested in exploring the unique paths my guests have taken and examining their decision-making process. And with that, let's dive in. Right. Well, this is, uh, you know, new territory for me. I've only interviewed vets to this point, but you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is help veterans, right? Like I was a vet for everybody that's listening out there that is a vet. Like my goal is to help you. But what I'd say is like a lot of the benefit that I got throughout the process was from veterans, but then some of the people I learned the most from were not vets. Yep. We're going into a world that isn't the world of veterans. We're like we're transitioning from the military and like whether you serve till you're a general or you get out after a couple of years, you know, you're entering a different world and yes. it's not yours as a vet. And so like I think understanding people's backgrounds, decision making processes, like way they ways they view the world is like super important. And I think vets can learn as much from you as they can from the other people I've interviewed. So thank you for being here. I am so happy to be here. So Morgan, um, tell me a little bit about yourself and like where you came from. Obviously we met here at Booth, but yeah. and like I've known you for a year and change now. Yeah. But like. I don't even remember when, we, when or where we first met. Yeah, I don't, I don't You've know You've just always either. been around. Unfortunately, there's no <laughs> Taylor Swift song that's going to come out of this, but. Very upsetting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the unique things about business school is that you get to know people, you know, incrementally over time, right? Just like most relationships. But a lot of times you don't get to dive into some of the the deeper aspects of like what makes you who you are. And so like hoping to do that selfishly and then hoping that some of the things that you've learned along the way are helpful to everybody listening. So yeah. how about your background? Tell me a little All bit. All right. I am born and raised in Bo- <laughs> Boca Raton, Florida. Um, I like to call it like white Jewlandia. It is the home of the Jews from New York and New Jersey. Um, my parents moved from New Orleans to work for Motorola when Motorola was at its height. And so born in West Boca, predominantly white, um, went to school through elementary school, basically only black kid in school, black kid in the neighborhood. I mean, black family in the neighborhood. That was very normal. And then I went to middle school of the arts, which kind of was a journey every day, two buses and a train, um, really bizarre experience because every day you'd get on a, on the train, there'd be hundreds of middle schoolers just hanging out for an hour, <laughs> just having a great time. Largely unsupervised. Almost completely unsupervised. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. And, um, but the middle school of the arts was unbelievable. Is kids from all walks of life, 
um, kids that look like me, kids that didn't look like me. I was a piano major. People were amazing. I was very subpar. Um, so, you know, to put things in perspective, people would be playing like Mozart and Beethoven and shit. And I'd be like, uh, hey, can I uh, play Alicia Keys at our recital? Like, I was very, very not on the same wavelength as everyone else, but my teacher liked me, Mr. Bensavanga. He was a huge Steelers fan. If they lost, the whole week would suck. Um, but he really just kind of let me do what I was comfortable doing um, because I was not at the same level as the other kids, which... I mean, eternal dilemma, right? Like, do you want to be a big fish in a small pond or do you want to be a, a small fish yeah. in a big pond? And like, I know when I was a kid, like part of me enjoyed being a small fish in a big or a big fish in a small pond rather. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it feels good to be, feel like you're good at something, but like then you realize that there's a lot of room to growth and for growth. And as soon as you kind of like exit that and get humble a little bit, right. uh, creates opportunity. Um, yeah, it was backing up, backing up just a second. Yeah. Um, was it your musical talent that got you to this high, this middle school? I, you're a kid, so it's probably not like you went yeah. through some intense decision-making I mean, process on trying to get there. At but. the time, it was competitive. Um, now it's a lottery system, which people have a lot of opinions about that in Palm Beach County. But at the time, it, it was very much like you auditioned to get in. And it's, you know, for my family, I was, I'm the oldest of three. So my parents, they did not want me going to school in Boca. Boca had fine schools. Palm Beach County has an amazing public school system. But they wanted me to be around other kids that look like me. And that was one of, if I, if I hadn't gotten in there, I would have gone to a magnet program at some other middle school. Um, but there was no way that I was going to my local school. My so parents weren't going to have that. Yeah, this was a driver then, which, it, I mean, obviously, as a middle school kid, your parents are making the decisions Absolutely. for you. So it wasn't like, hey, mom, I really want to go to this school. It was kind of, they kind of gave you a couple options. Were you able mm -hmm. to pick which one you wanted? I mean, it was, hey, do you want to audition for this? Would you be willing to kind of do this trek every day? And it was a big deal. I mean, I'd have to get on the bus by my house, wait at the train station. I mean, there's a, like, this is the... Uh, I don't even remember what the damn train is called. Yeah, but like, you it's, know, it's whatever. Like a, this is pre-iPhone, so you oh, know, yeah. your parents work for Motorola. Well, so I had like, all the I got cell a Razor. No, me, seriously. I mean, I, I lost phones every other week. But because my parents, my mom worked in marketing, my dad worked, you know, on the in the plant as an engineer. Um, I, every time, I, I had every new phone. I had the beeper phone. I had the razor phone. I had the baby fat phone that would have all the cool all right, little stop jingles. Bragging. Let's no, it was on. cool. Um, but that that was also something that made it seem more safe because the rise of cell phones was happening as I was entering middle school. Um, so it was actually very cool because they could communicate with me. They would know when I was coming home. Both my parents worked and traveled for work. So it was, it was actually very helpful, the cell phone, uh, the rise of the cell phone. So... Yes, it was a de decision. It was my decision. They let it be my decision. Um, but it was the coolest school experience ever. I mean, you have kids that are insanely talented. Um, you're kind of allowed to be whoever you want to be. There was no stigmas around kids that were different, kids that were expressing themselves. Like, everybody was celebrated. And that was very, very cool and probably not very normal at other middle schools. You know? Yeah. It was cool. Then high school came, and 
I went to an international baccalaureate school, but my school was like 65% black with this like little IB program. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the school was black, but then in my program, I was like the only black person. So that was a bizarre experience. What's IB? International baccalaureate. So if you think of AP, IB is the international version of like taking AP classes. So there's a curriculum that's used around the world. Um, it's very standardized in many ways, in my opinion, harder than AP because they made us do both because that was how the school made money. For every test that we pass, the school was paid a couple hundred dollars. And we didn't know that until we graduated. So I did like 14 AP IB tests in high school. But it was normal. Everybody, they didn't let you choose. That's wild. Okay. Yeah. So, but it was... It was interesting because I wanted to run student government. I wanted to run the yearbook club. You know, I was, I had an office in high school. Like I literally had an office that people could come to when I was like the yearbook editor. Like it was like a joke that mm -hmm. I loved. Um, no, I don't believe that you somehow worked your way into a, a position of influence. Yeah. Um, but it, it was tough because being one of the only black people in my program, which was the accelerated academic program, you know, everyone around me not just i mean not just outside my program but in my program were not of the same socioeconomic status that i was so my family's you know mid to high like i drove a bmw in high school i pulled up in my mom's convertible to like my high school where people couldn't even afford like a broken down car you know so it was i was in a position of of I don't know. I had a lot of financial support, so I never was concerned with those things. But I always worked. I always tutored. I always babysat. I was making cash mm -hmm. to do things that I love to do. So yeah. a, a couple questions that I think I, I just would like to know out of curiosity because I think they form probably your perspective mm -hmm. um, before we get into like the bigger decisions in life and stuff. Um, going from a school where you're the only black person, the only person that looks like you when you're young to a middle school that's super diverse, but then everybody, the, it seems like the common thread is that everyone's super talented, right? Yeah, in some ways. Um, at your middle school and then your high school seems to be different. Uh, you know, we didn't talk about whether or not you applied to get in or whether it was the, the decision process around that or what kind of school it was, mm -hmm. other than that it had this IB program. It was like, it seems like it's super intense and was for high achieving yes. kids who were going to go on to great you know schools and and then that kind of bifurcated the school between those those people and everyone else and you a said huge you were the huge only. bifurcation yeah and so you have that division school internal even though the school has you said predominantly black is like 65 yeah. percent yeah mostly but, first generation caribbean and spanish students okay and then but and so then within the school it seems like okay this is super diverse but then you get to your program and a you're back to where you were in grade school. Well, the, the program was very, the program was incredibly diverse, but there were, it was very limited black representation. Okay. So like my friends, we looked like the model UN. It was unbelievable. And, but I just happened to be like the only black student in my class. Okay. Um, and I, you know, there's certain things you don't understand when you're a kid. Um, so, for example, I never understood why the guidance counselor would help out the kids that were top 10 and not really spend time with kids that weren't. I was number 14. 
I got no help from my guidance counselor, my application process. I was a top black student in my entire school. We had over 3,000 kids. I had no idea. I was just like, okay, I'm here. I'm doing it. You know, I'll be fine. I'm going to go to school. Um, and the question of whether I was going to go to school was never a question. The question was, where do you want to go? And my parents had told me, okay, you know, we haven't paid for school for you your entire life. I was in public school my whole life. Awesome school. Like, can't complain. Wherever you go, we'll pay for it. And at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. You know, like, okay, great. I'll go wherever I want to go. Um, I didn't realize that 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 there was a huge barrier to entry for a lot of kids that were just as smart as me, just as driven as me, that their parents were telling them, no, you will go to University of Florida because you're on scholarship. And my parents, they didn't, they didn't force me to do that. I could have went to Florida for free. I would have gone in as a second semester junior, fully paid for. I would have gotten paid every quarter. And my parents told me I didn't have to go if I didn't want to. And now I can appreciate it at a whole different level. But I, I was just like, great, they'll pay for whatever I want. I mean, I didn't realize how, how big of a decision it was on their end to allow me to go wherever I wanted to go. Yeah. Which looking back now, it was a huge sacrifice on their end. You know, big, big sacrifice. Because when I chose to go to Vanderbilt, there was no financial aid. I didn't qualify. I didn't get a merit scholarship. And my parents still said I could go. Right. And I mean, <laughs> at the time, I'm guessing that's what, like a forty, fifty thousand dollars oh, a year bill? I mean, I think they came out with a 250K plus bill. Yeah. It's a big deal. And so as you looked at that, just that decision real mm-hmm. quick, um, super fortunate that finances didn't really play into it for you yeah. when you were making your decision. But what was your decision on, hey, I'm getting, was Vanderbilt the just the best school you got into? Was it the yeah. school that you felt like, hey, you had the best connection to? Um, and, you know, I was, what I was trying to get at a little earlier is you went from a place where you clearly felt like you were the only person who looked like you and what impact did that have on your perspective of the way you interacted? But then you went to a place where that wasn't the case and you went back to a place where it kind of was and it wasn't at the same time. And so like, as you kind of, as a person, did you feel, how did that shape your perspective when you just view like people on an individual level and then how did it shape like your perception of groups? Yeah, I think, I actually think about this a lot Um, and we'll get more into this kind of when I talk about college and post-grad and booth. Um, I always wanted people to feel like they were part of the community. So like when I was the yearbook editor, I was trying to tell as many stories as I could, Um, help students within our community that were first generation understand like why we do a yearbook why we tell these stories, tell stories from within our community. I was always trying to give people a chance to be heard and celebrated. And I've always felt that way. Um, in high school is when I really got to like kind of exercise that muscle because people were always questioning me. Are you black? Well, are you Spanish? Well, you're not black enough. You're not Haitian, so you're not black. You're not dark skinned. Well, are you white? It's the question that I've gotten most my entire life is what are you every day? since I was a kid. I get it now still, depending on how my hair is done, depending on what I'm wearing, depending on who I'm with, every day. So for me, helping to tell other people's stories gave me an opportunity to tell my story for people to find ways to connect with people. Um, And I mean, you know, I still do that today. 
So a, a big part of that was people always trying to define who I was, right? So when I was looking at colleges, there were a couple of things that were really important to me. And I, and I ended up having quite a few options. I had no Ivy options, um, but I was choosing between Vanderbilt, Wash U, Emory, Rice, UF with the scholarship, Xavier, New Orleans. I wanted to be a dentist. My whole life I wanted to be an orthodontist. Um, but I wanted to go to a place where there was a black community. I wanted to go to a place where there were sports because to me, sports is what helps create community. Um, and I wanted to go to a place where I knew I could lead shit from like day one. And it took me, I didn't have a dream school. I had spent a whole summer at Vanderbilt and wasn't like, I'm going there. Um, I had a cousin at Vanderbilt, still was like not going there. Um, but I went back for what we call Mosaic Weekend, and that's our multicultural recruitment weekend. And I just had a ball. And we had the step show, and I'm getting to see, I mean, really, it's it's not truly a great representation of the experience because they're bringing you all of these cultural pieces in one weekend, and everybody's showing out. And it's really a way over-exaggerated version of what it's actually like. But I felt so at home and so welcome. And that was it. After that, I called my dad and I was like, hey, I'm not going to wash you next week. And he's like, they're paying for you to go visit. You're going. And I was like, no, I'm not. I have tests because it was like AP or IB, you know, exam season. And I was like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not got, going. to make the high school money, right? Yeah. I was so. like, I'm not, I'm not going. And my dad was devastated because he was like, that's the highest ranking school you got into. You know, you should really go. And I was like, uh, I feel like the people are weird and I'm not going there. I want to go where like people are having fun. I mean, Vanderbilt was an SEC school at the time. We had a thriving black community, thriving black Greek community. Um, and people were dope. People had this whole work hard, play harder mentality. Frat row was lit. I mean, it, it was a it was a movie every weekend. And yeah, so I, I went. Awesome. And great experience. Obvious. I mean, some great and some yeah. not great things. Right. Um, Vanderbilt very much made me who I am today in a lot of ways but it, it was in a lot of ways a painful experience so you know for those that may be listening that are vandy grads people of color have a very different experience at vanderbilt than the majority community it is pretty segregated it still is i talked to a girl that runs our black student alliance this weekend and i mean we didn't recognize martin luther king day until my freshman year like it i worked very hard to try yeah bizarre wait it was already a federal holiday right yeah we still had school until my freshman year of college okay it's and then you know i sat in a committee with all these faculty and advisors and and we now have made it into this beautifully celebrated day that it's not just vanderbilt people but the national community and it's awesome but no i i was just doing the most i was doing the most at all times i was running Black Student Alliance, running our multicultural weekend. I worked in admissions. I sat in student government. I stood up our recruitment program with Coach James Franklin, which introduced me to the world of sports. Like I was just always in some shit, which is why I did not become a dentist because I realized that I was gonna, I was failing all my science classes. <laughs> I was failing, I was an English and history major because I told my parents, if I have to do these science classes to get to dental school, then I'm gonna take classes that I actually wanna take. So I was an English and history double major. And and then I was like failing all my science classes through like graduation, literally. 
Well, I mean, hey, look, I mean, that leads to a whole series of decisions, right? So you're in school and yeah, I don't know how you viewed education. I certainly took like it attributed to Mark Twain, whether the quotes his or not, whatever, <laughs> but um, don't let your schooling interfere with your education to yeah. like the extreme. Um, meaning that like I, I wanted to learn as much as possible, but I didn't necessarily like the proxy of your grade in school wasn't yeah. as important to me as like the learning, but also not at all. It sounds like you wanted you wanted and made an impact on the community itself versus like using the credential to maximize just like riding the wave to the next thing. Yeah. Um, like, it, it, where's that sense of agency come from for you? Because you talked about what I gathered from what you said about the yearbook and everything else was that you you developed a sense of empathy and wanting to tell other people's stories to share them with people but where where do you think the drive to then not just tell a story but implement change came from for you because it sounds like you hit the ground running with it at vandy yeah i mean my first week of school i it's a big internal question for me literally and this is going to sound ridiculous but it's very much how i've felt and still feel Am I going to be white here or am I, or am I going to be black? And just so y'all know, like my family's from New Orleans or Creole, you know, my skin is very red, you know, but I don't have like, I have relatively like kind of white girlish hair. Like it's, it's a lot. So that's why I get the question, what are you? And when I got to Vandy, what I realized was that black people did not interact with the white community. Um, or if you were black in the white community, then you did not interact with the black community. And that was pretty standard. Now, if you were an athlete or a guy that played basketball in the gym, like you could go hang out with some of the white guys, but like it was pretty segregated. And so I had to ask myself, am I going to be white or am I going to be black here? And I was like, I'm going to be unapologetically black. And I I owned it. I did everything I could for the black community. I, you know, what's funny is that I say that, but then my biggest shtick was I have to figure out how to make our community strong enough so that we can be a part of the Vanderbilt community. And I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out how do you bridge the gap? Why is this so difficult? Why do we tend to group people into these groups and just write them off as people that we don't interact with? And it was it was really tough. Because a school across the board, whether you were black, Indian, Spanish, gay, like everybody was struggling to be a part of the bigger community. And a big part of that was fraternity life. Like frat life was huge. Greek life was a big deal at Vandy at the time. So if you know, once you entered that system, that was a whole different world that you didn't access. And so I was constantly just trying to create community within Vanderbilt, always trying to create community. But I realized that as much as I was trying, I wasn't, I hadn't figured out how to actively practice what I was preaching. Right. So people would know me. Same way people at Booth know me. People would know who I was because I was running all kinds of stuff. I was everywhere all the time. But I wasn't building those deep relationships, friendships where I was hanging out with people that didn't look like me on the weekends. Like we may work on something together for class or I may get people on board for an initiative, but I didn't really know people outside the black community well. And I and I can give you my whole theory on why that is. It has to do with drinking. But um, but yeah, it was, I just felt a need, like I feel a need in any space that I go in to leave an impact and, and I can't help myself. 
But at the same time, like that came at the expense of my grades. That came at the expense of what I thought my dream was. Um, I mean, my mom was still asking me if I was going to dental school two years after graduating. And I was like, no, I'm not failing. I'm not taking another science class. And I did everything. So I, I guess that is a good decision to dive into, right? Uh, and there's like a lot of things I'd like to explore there. But like, as far as decisions go, you went to school thinking you'd be a dentist, double major in stuff you just liked, I assume. Yeah. Um, and at some point you realized that I'm sure it wasn't just your grades, right? I'm sure it was also like a sense of what you're passionate about. Yep. When did that really happen for you where you sat down, if you sat down and, and said, hey, like, I'm not going to be a dentist and I'm going to pursue this other thing or I don't know what I'm pursuing, but it's not going to be dentistry and here's why. Yeah. What was that framework? What did you think through? And in, in like, obviously grades were a part of it, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple when I think about trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life decisions at like that college stage. I remember my sophomore year, I just failed another biology test and I'm calling my mom. I'm crying outside of the admissions office. That's where I worked. I don't even know why I was working, but I was like, I need to have my own money. So always had some form or fashion of a job. And I was sitting there, I'm like, you know what, mom? I really think that I should just let this shit go. You know, maybe I'm not supposed to be a dentist. Maybe I should just go to law school. All my professors were like, why are you not going to law school, Morgan? All right, your Rex. And I was like, no, don't tell me what to do. I'm gonna be a dentist. I wanna be a dentist, you can't tell me anything. And I was very stubborn, I was very hard headed. And for those of you that have met my mom, you know, she cusses way more than I do. I mean, I cuss a lot, but she outshines me. And um, she was like, what are you gonna do with a law degree? There's so many lawyers that don't make money. You know, you could be a broke lawyer, you're not doing that. And she claims she doesn't remember these conversations, which I believe her, but my my mom, I mean, both my parents had were ex-corporate people. My mom was an entrepreneur. My dad has been running a chapter of the Urban League for forever, but they traveled when I was a child. And so my mom did not want me to be burdened with traveling and trying to raise a family. So for her, being a dentist was great. I could have my own practice. You know, I wouldn't have to travel. Um, and she, I so much saw it and said it for myself for so many years that she was like, no, like you're failing because you're making events every day and like doing all this bullshit and you're not studying. Like you need to choose what you really wanna do. But every quarter I told myself I could just, you know, make it through. And so I did, I mean, I did the whole deal. I did physics, biochem, orgo, the DAT twice, got the score I needed, but I didn't have the grades. So during my time at Vandy, I had worked for Coach Franklin, who's now at Penn State and has done very well. But our program was shit before he came. We became a, you know, a bowl game winning team, mind you, shitty bowl games. But we became a bowl game winning team. We got the indoor facility, we got new facilities, and I was behind the scenes for all of that. I was the first person that recruits met when they came to campus. And I would sell the Vanderbilt dream. I'm good at selling shit. So I would sell them the Vanderbilt dream and get them to come on board into our like burgeoning program. And I loved the world of sports. And once you see the business side, it's just a whole different like factory. Like it's, it's not what you, what you see on the TV is just a blip in what that process really looks like. And he had left to Penn State. Coach Mason came in and he was like, what are you gonna do? I'm a senior. 
And I'm like, well, I think I'm finally accepting that I'm not going to dental school. Mind you, this is second semester, senior year. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And he's like, well, do you want to stay and work for me? And I was like, well, I'd like to. But if I do, you need to pay me a salary. And if you can't, then I have to walk because you don't know my mom. And she's not going to have me graduating without a job. And I can't just hang out here for six months. And he told me, well, I can, I can pay you in November. I was like, that's not going to work for me. So I needed some time to figure out what I wanted to do. I ended up taking a job with Teach for America to give me that buffer. And that didn't last very long. It lasted about six months. And then I went home and said, you know what? I need to figure out what I really want to do. Because if I keep doing this, I I don't have the capacity and time to think about what I really want to do with my life. Um, I thought for, what, 15 years that I was going to be a dentist. And now I had to think about, like, what could I actually do? What was I actually good at? Um, and so I moved back home. So there, there were no real decision-making processes like, Hey, I'm going to be a dentist last second. That doesn't work out opportunity in front of you, like a non-starter because of finances and really your mom. Yeah. Um, uh, and, uh, and then teach for America, I guess that the deadline hadn't passed. You just threw it in as like something yep. to kick the can down the road. Yeah. Something so where I could like get paid, interest? where I could give back, um, and where I could just give myself some space to really figure out what I wanted to do. Because when I, when I finally said I wasn't going to dental school, I had to ask myself, am I willing to go back to school to go back to school? Will I do a post-bac program? And when nothing in me was saying apply for a post-bac, I was like, I'm done. If I don't want to do what it's gonna take me to do to get in, then I don't want it bad enough. But I think accepting that I didn't want it bad enough was tough what were you actually teaching in a school when Mm -hmm. you quit teach for america yep so i mean it doesn't sound like you were much of a quitter what was the process of thinking through that choice yeah i mean how'd you make it there was a lot going on um a lot of people were at the in the area that i was in where were you teaching like just generally in new orleans okay um you know teach for america supposed to be a two-year stint it seemed to be a three to five year stint for people that were in New Orleans. And I just realized that I was, I was the only black teacher in my school. Um, I had hundreds of kids that were depending on me. Um, And it was just, it it was a lot of pressure. And I was like, okay, people are getting stuck here. I'm gonna get stuck here. And I can't afford for that to happen. Like, I don't see myself being here for that long, so. Just, I had to walk, call my parents. I'm like, all right, I'm done. I need to come home and figure my life out. And at that point, you know, every summer I had spent trying to get into dental school, taking orgo over the summer, retaking chemistry, all this, you know, education stuff. And I was exhausted. I mean, I slept for a month and a half when I moved back home. Like, month and a half, knocked out, and really had to ask myself, what do I want to do? What where where do what do I even think I want to do? I had never thought of going to work in a business because I thought I was going back to school. <laughs> like there was never a thought process. You know, so it gets to the point where my mom is tired of me reading Harry Potter and listening to the score in the living room. She's like, This is getting out of hand. It's been a month. You need to think about what you want to do. And I'm like, Well, I really would love to work in sports, but I'm not an ex athlete. Um I don't really know where I could fit in and I, I just, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, you know what? 
I know that I could sell people stuff. I could get anybody on board with initiatives, programming, buy-in, whatever. Um, but, you know, maybe I could spell, sell sports media. I could do that. I can get advertisers on board. And my mom, she was an ex, you know, marketing executive in the whole life. I don't want you to go down marketing. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Um, but ended up, you know, connecting me with people. I'm working my sports network. She's working her sports network. And one of her old friends that was still an executive at Turner, an account executive, was like, hey, we had an assistant position just open. Have her apply. He's like, it's not rocket science. Just have her apply. And so they put me through the ringer for this, like, basic-ass job. <laughs> like, super basic job. And I got the job. So I moved to Atlanta and worked for Turner Sports. Um, and that was really the bulk of my career. So kind of on a on a whim right you you'd done some work with sports in college and so you're like yeah, sports sounds cool so i'd love to go do that so again just like riding the path of luck to some degree and, and randomness of life you mm. get to turner though and you you know in your high school and college career were super involved yeah. had a lot of agency you're making an impact in a lot of ways doesn't sound like Maybe we glossed over it, but it didn't sound like that was the case in Teach for America necessarily. Different experience. Yeah. Not a good one. Hopefully a learning experience in a lot yeah, of ways. Absolutely. Um, and if there is a lesson from that, we'd love to hear it. But... I mean, my my biggest takeaway, and it's so cliche, but feedback was a huge part of their process. Like every single day you were getting people telling you what you were good and bad at. And I took that with me wholeheartedly going forward. Because, you know, I like to be the person leading. I was used to running these groups with 20 people, executive boards. Like, I was used to running things like I was my own little boss. And then there it was like, no, I'm going to tell you what you're good at today and what you're bad at today. And you have to take that non-emotionally, you know. So for me, I, I've, I take feedback as a gift. I take feedback as if people are willing to give you feedback, then they still care. The moment someone stops giving you real feedback, you're done. So that's how I view feedback because of that And process. you learned that from Teach for America? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you learn anything about the decision to go into it and then leaving it six months later that, that was valuable moving forward as well? Was there like a, a new heuristic you use for decisions now if you're going to enter something so that you yeah. don't leave? Yeah. I mean, you got to do what, what you're passionate about right? You don't want to do a disservice to people in an organization that you're working with or whoever you're serving. So for me, everything that I'm trying to do now is about what drives me. And that's things that bring people together. I love to build, you know, have conversations that build community that lead to positive consequences. That's kind of my, my life's motto. Um, and so everything that I do is how do I literally have conversations, give space for conversations that build communities? And I had a much better idea of the industries that I wanted to work in. So for me, things that bring people together is sports, food, and Bev. And if I could be somewhere around people, sports, food, and Bev in that space, then I would be pleased. Um, and I just, you know, I didn't think there was a home for me. Sports is, I mean, yeah, sports is, is sexy, but like, it's not all that once you're in it. 
at any level now that I've been on the team side, on the media side, you know, et cetera. And it's, you know, you don't get paid shit. So like there's a million people that want to work in sports because it's awesome. But the reality is, you know, it's not that great. So finding a place that made sense that I could at least get some experience was was really hard. Because it's like I'm a black woman, non-athlete. Where do I fit in? And where did you fit in? So you, you show up, you show up at Turner, right? And and the, yeah. the preamble I was trying to get out there is, you're you're at the bottom of an organization that oh, I'm yeah. guessing is hierarchical in some way. So Ooh. like you've had a lot of you've had a lot of agency, right? In your oh, co- yeah. high school college career, and now you know oh, I was an assistant. Your foot is in the door, which is good, but your foot's in the door, right? Like <laughs> you don't own the house. How do you? Uh, how do you address that? I mean, yeah. you're still young. You're still right out of college, but right. clearly it's, you know, I'm getting, picking up yeah. on who you are, right? I mean, what, I'm so. I'm 23-ish, 20, yeah, I think 23 or 24. I'm coming in as a sales assistant. Get, like, I mean, let me not say the F word, but like, get out of here. Like, I'm, I'm like, oh my God. Like, I'm like helping people with emails. Like, have you seen the memes where it's like, you know, it's, I'll show it to you. But it's basically like the people above you are getting paid three times your salary and you're having to show them how to open a PDF. Yeah. Like that's where I was at. Um, Media is very traditional. It's really slow moving. You know, it's not very innovative. And I'm coming in as a sales assistant. I'm being told what to do. I've got people watching me. I've got people micromanaging me. And I just want to pull my hair out. Just want to pull my hair out. But, you know, I had to come in do you know learn that was easy (laughs) you know scale up understand what i'm doing but you know my first year i was scared to leave my desk i was scared to leave my desk because i had an executive that was just on my ass for no reason and i literally did nothing my first year would sit at my desk every day from eight to five torture i wasn't even given a laptop because I was told that if I had a laptop that I would never be at my desk. And I was like, well, why does it matter if the work is getting done? So for me, it was it was a very humbling experience um, because like I said, I was used to running my own ship in some form or fashion. And all of a sudden I'm being told like literally like how to move. Um, but I, at the same time, I still tried to give value. So I made it my mission to get to know people outside of sales because you know sales was a very interesting space to be you are kind of in the middle of all these groups that depend on you to survive so you have marketing that's building things for you to sell you have ops which is you know building the back end stuff for you to you know for what sells to actually make it to air and i was working in digital linear and social you know so i was working across the board so everything from nba on tnt inside the nba pga march madness Bleacher Report in its beginnings, like really, really cool properties, right? Like cool shit, everything but football, which sucked, but really cool stuff. Um, But I wanted to understand how the organization worked as a whole because sales is just a piece, right? So I wanted to know how strategy worked. I wanted to know um, how ops worked, how marketing worked, how the studios worked. Because like inside the NBA, you know, they all sat underneath our office. So I get to go down there and see Shaq and them hang out sometimes. But like it, I had to make that experience my own. I had to 
make myself a seat at the table knowing damn well as an assistant or even sales planner, I had no business being at any tables that I was finding myself at. But they had a couple leadership um, leadership programs and I was like, all right, if this is going to be an excuse for me to get away from my desk and meet people, then I'm going to do it. And so I just did different leadership programs that put me, you know, gave, gave me an opportunity to be put in front of the C-suite at Turner. Um, I had a reverse mentoring program where the chief strategy officer was my mentee. And I got to learn from him how to really build a relationship with someone that's super high, um, a meaningful relationship. And we did that a lot through reading together and all you know kinds of stuff like that. But I just kept putting myself in position to be in front of higher leadership. Um, found some other really dope young people. We created this group called uh, the Culture Catalyst. And we would just sit down and ideate ideas that we knew would bring revenue to the company. Got a seat at the table with the president and COO, just pitching them ideas. None of our business to do that. But it at least gave me a chance to really work on strategy, things that were just way out of my purview, but things that really brought me joy because I hated my day-to-day job. I was selling media, selling spots. Hey, Nike, do you want to buy, you know, 10 spots in the NBA, you know, playoffs? Like, okay, great. It's $3 million. Place it, place it, place it. Send it off. Make sure it runs. Like, it's not rocket science. Selling's easy. You know, it's a people skill. But building the strategies and mindsets that help to really transform a company, that's what I was really interested in. And I couldn't do it at, at Turner. I, they were going through an acquisition. AT&T was buying us. When I started at Turner, they had just laid off 1,500 people or something around that called Turner 2020 which is funny now because 2020 has been so bad. And um, when I was leaving, we had just closed on the AT&T acquisition. So they're still laying off people. So there was no wiggle room to be trying new things, to be standing up new verticals, to really be pushing the buttons. Everybody was scared and they still are. So I think you've hit on something that I, I want to dive into though. And, and, and sometimes people don't know, they just make a decision. Like they don't actually understand what, inherently why they do it yeah. but it seems to me you made a clear decision that i'm going to do my job well but i'm not going to make my mark on the company or the career development i want solely through doing my job yes um, absolutely and so for like military people that's a really foreign concept like in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know you have your scope of responsibility you're going to do it and nobody most people in the military don't try to network up Um, Right. You put your head down, do your work, and you're going to get recognized for it at some point. But like trying to influence the organization is not typically the move. Um, And so coming out, that's like a complete paradigm shift on how to think. Absolutely. What was your, because it sounds like it was just the decision you were making. Like there was no, there wasn't a whole lot of framework or thought process behind it. But there's intention. And and I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it is. So I was raised to treat everybody the same. My mom would tell me, I don't care if it's the janitor. I don't care if it's the CEO or the president. You treat them the same. Do not be intimidated. They are just people. That's it. And that's how I've always treated everybody. So for me, when I came into Turner and I see our CEO, uh, who happens, I forgot his name, um, who's sitting in the lunchroom eating lunch, and I just decided to go up to him and introduce myself and say, hey, I'm working on this stuff. Like, I love what you're doing here. Like, here's what I think could be better. Like, that's the type of person that I am. Because to me, he's just another person. And it's my job to, to introduce myself or at least have some, something of value to share. Um, 
if I go speak to them. So for me, like I'm, what I found fascinating was like you had people that had been in the company for 10 years and they're like, oh, I don't know that person. Oh, I'm scared to go talk to them. I'd be like, get out of here. For what? They're just people. How are they supposed to help you if they don't know who you are? And how, I mean, to me, like I will always be my biggest advocate, which I think, especially for women, is tough. But like, if I don't think I'm the shit, then why would you? And so that's how I operated. So anytime I had an opportunity to work on something, anytime I was invited to be in a room that I wasn't supposed to be in, you know, I would ask to be in the room that I wasn't supposed to be in. And I had no problem doing that. Like, I had no problem with people laughing, calling me the mayor of Turner. And I'm a sales assistant. Like, I had no problem with that. Because to me, if people knew me for good reasons, if they knew what my interests were, if they knew what my skill sets were, then that may give me an opportunity to make a move in the company into a place where I would be more successful, where I would get an opportunity to work on better stuff. Um, and I just, I, I had to maximize my time because if my ass was going to be there from eight to five, I had to make the most out of my time, you know? So I think for me, it's like, if you see, there's very few people that intimidate me and I see everybody's opportunity just to get to know them better. Like people just want to be talked to like they're a regular ass person, at least for the most part. If you treat them as such, then they'll they'll open their door to you. Yeah. And it, you're hitting on like the personal reasons to do it from a career perspective. But was there a, another aspect to it as far as like from an idea standpoint? I It took me being able to be around people that were working in other things to be able to create compelling solutions. Right? So I... Being in the sales arm is a specific, you know, task less. But to really figure out how can you sell better stuff? How can you create better things? How can you give ideas to marketing that helps us sell more things? I had to know how the whole thing worked. So like my understanding of the media industry is really robust now. But that's only because I refuse to sit at my desk. Right. Well, and, and to that point, what I was trying to pull out is I think that you have a similar, like my mindset in the military at least was like, again, super apolitical. Like you don't do any networking at all. And it's not that you're not willing to go sit down with the CEO, right. you know, or the commander of your unit. It's just that like, you know, you don't want to be seen as politicking for your position. You just yep. want to be the most competent to go get like yeah. the job done. And if you get selected, great. Yeah. Um, but what I will say, and I think what you're, what you're not, I think what was definitely motivating you and tell me if I'm wrong, um, is that you want to solve problems yeah. and make the organization you're part of better. And Absolutely. like, in I think hierarchy matters, like in organizations, it's there yeah. for a reason. But when you're talking about ideas, like there's no, there's no rank for people in that space. You're it's, no. it's, data fact opinion yes and then like decision making so how are you going to drive forward on an idea should never be like a rank-based decision right and the other thing to keep in mind is you never want to have to go to people when you actually need some shit so for me i'd just be trying to meet people in general get to know a little bit about what they do let them teach me something about the business that i didn't know Maybe I can give something of value to them, maybe. Because um, there are certain things that within sales, people just don't understand or, or know how we operate. Um, 
And so when I was in a place where I'm like, hey, I have something that I think is really interesting, you know, they already knew who I was. They knew what I did, what my kind of where my ideas laid, but I could go to them for support or for referencing or whatever it may be. But I was never going to somebody and saying, hey, I need something from you, so I'm going to come introduce myself. That was never, never mm -hmm. how I operated because nobody wants the first conversation you have to be, I need this. So I just made it my business to know people, you know, in general. So then when I walked through the lunchroom at work and I could say hey to everybody, you know, I got to pick up a little bit about what was going on in their unit every day, which was awesome because it was way cooler shit than what was going on in our unit, even though we were making all the money for the company. So. And so you do all that. You're the Marriott Turner, uh, you know, apparently. Loved it. And you decide to leave the company is that yeah and what was like your decision process on hey had you you know sound like you're kind of thriving at the company well thriving uh but you're still outwardly, in the same job but right? still i'm a sales planner okay. i'm making fifty thousand dollars a year i'm however many years out of school three four years out of school my friends are making more money than me i'm realizing that i can't move up within the organization right because it's a big jump from being a planner to a sales executive I'm an account executive. One of my executives have been there for 19 years. She's not going anywhere. So the chances for me to move are very slim. Um, because the company was going through a major transition, um, there, there was just nowhere to go. And quite frankly, there was no job where I was like, damn, I really want their job. Nobody was doing innovative shit the way I wanted to do innovative shit, the way that I was doing things, the buttons that I was willing to push as a planner. I'm sitting in front of the president. He's asking me, hey, what do you think about Bleach Report Live? And I'm like, this shit sucks. And here is why. Who is this built for? It can't be for me. I'm a millennial. I'm not trying to buy more subscription services. Like, and I can look everything up on Google. Why would I go here to find where a game is when I could look up my team on Google and it goes straight to where I need to go? So I was willing to say what I felt like needed to be said. Um... But at the same time, I was like, I've got to get out of here. I had been a sales planner for two years. So I'd been in the organization three years. One as an assistant, I got promoted a year, two years as a sales planner. And after that, people usually use Turner as a springboard because you can't get to that executive level. There's just not enough space. Um, no one's going to give up their territory for you. Like, that's not happening. So I started trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do? I looked at consulting and I was like, oh, I'm not going through that process. So that's negative. After I remember like I had like McKinsey or somebody like emailing me like, hey, if you want to work through how to do a case, I'm like, oh, this is not happening. Um, but I, I didn't really want to stay in sales, but I didn't know where I could go. I was in Atlanta. There's very limited, there's very few media companies. I wasn't in New York. Um, I didn't want to go to New York. And so I just started like trying to apply to places that I thought I could I don't, I don't even know. Like, I didn't have a good process for how I was applying to jobs. I was just trying to find a job that would get let me do something different. And so my process for business school, for choosing to go to business school, was kind of twofold. So were you making that decision at the in, same time? At Turner, yes. Okay. So, and I didn't leave Turner till I left for Booth. Okay. So I had one, I had two friends that one was in dental school, one's in optometry school in Boston. I went to visit. I had bought books to study for the GRE years before that. Never opened them from Amazon in the plastic wrap on my desk. Um, never opened them. Went to go visit my friends in Boston. They were both in school all day. I said, like, you know what? 
I'm going to go visit HBS and see if this is really somewhere that I want to be. Like if, if I really actually want to go back to school. That was in February of 2018, I think. Yeah, yeah, because 2019 and 2021, we graduated in 2021. So 2018, I go to class at HBS and my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, I have to go back to school literally now. If I'm going to do it, it's now. I can leave Turner. Like I, I have enough time to apply. So during that process, I'd already been applying for jobs as I'm ready to get out of Turner. Half, most of my team had quit. They had left. So I was literally by myself, like doing multiple jobs, not getting paid for it, um, trying to help our team hire and onboard new people. And I'm applying to jobs. It gets to be like May or June. I applied cold to Google. Ended up making to a final round at Google to be one of their account managers for specifically their Home Depot account nationally. And I get to the final and, you know, I was so bold. I literally told my boss. And at the time, he was like my fifth or sixth boss at Turner because we had so much turnover. Um, and he's actually sits here in Chicago. Their offices are like right next to my apartment. And I called him. I said, hey, Mike. So I'm in this process for Google and I think I'm going to get it. And if I do, I'm going to be leaving. So I just want you to know that if this does come through, like I'm out. And I don't want you to be shocked because nobody else is in the office. We hadn't hired anybody. I'm like, so I don't, I just don't want to be a bitch. Like if I get it, I'm out. And then I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't get it. And, um, and I was devastated because I was like, I was so close. It would have been a huge salary bump. I would have been at a fang company. I was hyped. The office was right near my house. Like I was super hyped and I didn't get it. And I think that was July or August. And I was like, all right, either... I've got to believe that I'm going to go to school or I'm going to keep applying for jobs. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to go to school <laughs> and it's not worth me trying to find a job. I have enough time and I think I can get into a good school. So I'm just going to be 100% in on school. And I literally told my team, I'm like, look, I'm applying to business school. Don't bother me. Like I'm at my desk. I'm going to be studying and I'm already doing three jobs because other people had quit. So I'm like, just give me my space to study and support me in this because it's time for me to go. And I was very frank about it. I was like, I'm only here because like, it doesn't make sense for me to get a new job right now. Were you it, also telling Mike this, by the way? Oh yeah, like, oh, absolutely. Okay, cool. So Mike sounds like a good boss. Yeah, he was because he knew that he couldn't do anything for me. Right, yeah. He knew that I couldn't grow. He knew like I was trying to bring opportunities to him from startup, like just different things. I was very active. Um, but I luckily had enough time. So I, I studied my ass off, you know, got my applications out, but I spent that whole July to January 2nd, just cranking on applications. Yeah. So this isn't as much on decision-making stuff, but I think it's important leadership and, and boss, like things to factor in when you're in charge of people is you have to achieve your company's objectives, but there's always a friction between that and taking care of your people and yeah. like where they need to go and what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and they can align or get close to aligning, but there will inevitably be some friction there. Yes. Um, and I think it's important as a boss, at least my approach is to take care of my people, knowing yeah. that 
we're going to meet the objective as a team, especially if they know that you care about them. Right. They're not going to let the ship sink. Um, Of course, there are times when you can press real hard like you've done previously and times not. But I think an important lesson for everyone out there, if you haven't been in that job yet, is to be like Mike. Like give your people time and space, especially if they've devoted a lot of time and talent yeah to making your team perform well absolutely and you know i was lucky because mike was remote for us um he had a lot on his plate but there was not a day when he was like no morgan like like i i knew i could be open with him about where i was at in my journey i was young i was 25 20 like he knew that i could not he knew what my talent was and knew that i could not because like i had the people that i had relationships with at turner People that have been here for forever did not know them. They had no FaceTime, like nothing. So it's just like, okay, like I'm doing all these cool things and I can't get recognized for it. I can't get paid for it. I can't get a promotion. And I told him that, frankly, I'm like, look, I'm too smart for this. Like, I'm just too talented to be here right now. It's like, I have to figure out how to get to next. I would like your support in this process. I don't want to have to hide it from you. I will still work. I will hold down the fort. But like, just know this is where I'm at. And hopefully by next June, I will be out. So you study, he gives you the time and space. You apply to business schools. Yep. And then I get to a really funky place. So work is great because I'm working, right? I'm working. Everything's cool. It gets to be February. I'm getting interview opportunities at these schools. And I my lease is up in Atlanta. And I'm like, okay. Um, do I believe I'm going to get into school? One. And if I do believe that I'm going to get into school, what am I going to do for my living situation? Because if I had started a new lease, it wouldn't have made sense. I would be leaving within the next few months. So it's like, what am I going to do? And so I'm leaving every week in an interview on business school interviews. And then I made the decision. I'm like, you know what? I've got to believe I'm going to get into school. I'm getting interviews. Um, I'm going to sell all my shit. All my furniture, I had a house full of furniture in Atlanta. I'm like, I'm going to sell all my stuff. And I'm going to hope that my friends really love me enough to let me live with them. So I sold everything that month of February. Every weekend I was interviewing, I'd come back that Monday, sell more stuff out my house. And I lived with friends for like three or four months. Just hoping that I would get in. And then finally, you know, April comes and I get my offers. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, great. (laughs) I'm going to school. You know, I had scholarships come in. I'm like, great, because my mom's like, this is all you. We paid for college. I'm not giving you a dime. So if you're going to do it, this is all you. And I wasn't making money. I was making nothing a year. So it's like, okay, like, I only have so much saved up. You know, I need to have enough to get me to literally like D-Day, like start of school. Um, But luckily I got in. I had friends that let me live with them for like four months. And I moved to Chicago that May to do a startup summer and work for a, a local startup here. So just real quick, like wh- where did you get in and what was your decision making process on like choosing Booth? Yeah. So Booth was Booth was the only top five school that gave me an interview. Um, I had an offer to Booth. I had a scholarship offer to go to UT McCombs, which was my mom's alma mater um, with the consortium fellowship. And then the other ones didn't really matter because they were part of the consortium, but I got the fellowship at UT. So I had UT, NYU, USC, 
And then I think I got waitlisted at Michigan at Ross. And when, so when you, when you say they didn't matter, are you talking like from a financial financially? Okay. Um, I was going to go where the money was. Yeah. So my hope when I came to interview a booth, I told my parents that's where I wanted to be, but I didn't want to get my hopes up because it was the only, it was the only top five school that gave me an interview. Um, and even if I made it through the interview, that did not mean that I was going to get in. And even if I got in, if money was a factor, if money was in um, my decision-making process, then like if they didn't come with the money, I couldn't, I wasn't going. And luckily they did not make that decision hard for me. So they came with the scholarship and that was it. I was like, all right, great. I'm in. And I put my money down the next week. Um, so it, it couldn't have been a more fulfilling process for me because I didn't know anything about the MBA process. Most of my friends were doctors, lawyers. People were not in MBA programs that I'm close with. Um, at least that were around my age. And like, I, I went in blind. I didn't even know I was supposed to be talking to people before interviews. I figured that out at my first interview. Like, oh, I should probably be calling people and like learning about the school. Yeah. I just didn't know. Well, nor did I, like, I didn't know a lot of this stuff either. Um, but you had, did you apply to all the top five schools? It, Cause the way I've, I've kind of think, think about it now, I talk to a lot of vets who are applying to Booth mm-hmm. and other, other top schools and or other schools in general. And I kind of think there are like six different criteria that, that everyone who wants an MBA is trying to get. Yep. Um, and then there's a seventh criteria that really comes into play once you're choosing which school you're going to go to. So, and that seventh criteria is finances, right? Yes. How are you going to pay for it? But the six reasons you go to school, I think are pretty universal, but how you rank them and what's most important to you is kind of how you can rank order the nuances between the different yes, schools, right? Absolutely. Um, and to spell those out, I might, might mess it up. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I really think that the different components are brand, like it matters. Yep. Right. Um, but then after brand network matters and that's the alumni and not just the alumni, but the institutions that are tied to the school that you go to. Absolutely. Uh, then there's friends and, and friends is they're a part of your network, but they're different. It's distinct, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to make friends in, in a business school environment, especially a full-time program. And then there's fun, which is definitely related to friends, but it's different. <laughs> like you just want to have a good time, yeah. right? And you make friends through shared experiences and having time to go have fun is a part of that. Yeah. There's the job. You want to get a job coming out of the program if you're going full-time and you know, brand is tied to that to some yep. depth or degree, but yes, it is. But it's not the same thing either. Nope. Like you can get a great job out of any school, and yes. then the last is a toolkit, knowledge. Hopefully, like that's a factor to people. And for some, yeah. like for me, it was one of the most the two most important factors. Yeah. I wanted to to really learn. I was coming from a place where I didn't have the toolkit at all to mm-hmm. succeed, and so I wanted to build it. And Booth was the best place for me for that. But. I kind of looked at those and tried to rank them and get a sense of where I wanted to go to school based on that. Maybe that's yeah. too rigid, but but like, I'm, was any of that in your head at all? Yeah. In some way? I mean, I wanted to be, for me, the city was important. So at Vanderbilt, everybody lived on campus. Like 93% of people lived on campus all four years. And it's funny because I would tell kids, because I, you know, I was a tour guide and I recruited for football, and I would always tell kids, Think about what is most important to you in in your school experience and the school that marks off the most on that list, you know, will be, you'll be fine. Like, but write down what's important to you. And so for me, be like, yes, the brand was incredibly important. You know, like I shop for the stars and, and 
you know, would see where I landed and luckily landed at Booth, but I wanted to be at a top school. Like we know the value of being at a top institution, um, just off name brand, period. I wanted to be in an awesome city. You know, if I was going to leave the South, which I lived in the South my whole life, you know, I wanted to go to a great city. But what I realized was unique about Booth was that everybody chose to live near each other. And when I was, you know, visiting NYU, visiting UT, visiting USC, people just lived all over the city. And I was like, well, how does that work? <laughs> like, what do you mean? So for me, like seeing that everybody chose to live near each other, or at least in close proximity, was really important to me. Um, and I wanted to feel like I was at home. So like when I came to interview, I sat in the Harper Center. I was there at a LPF, which is our liquidity preference function on Friday nights during normal times. And I was there for hours just talking to people. And what was really important to me as a black person was that I wanted to see black people having conversations and relationships with people that were not black. I didn't want to see a dependency on the black community. And mind you, there's a lot of conversations around like our diversity numbers and things like that. But to me, I didn't want to come and be the black person. I wanted to come and be a booth student. <laughs> like that's what I wanted to be. So when I came to visit and I saw people of all backgrounds just hanging out in conversation for hours, I was like, wow, I can see myself here. And it was a big, that LPF, that that was it for me. I was like, I I want to be here. Everybody was so welcoming and kind and, and authentic. Um, there was no like, you know, I'm at a top school clout. Like nobody gives a shit. Like no one cares if you're care what kind of bag you're carrying or what kind of coat you're wearing. Like that was not the feel or the conversation when I came to Booth. And it was very important for me. So, you know, seeing the culture, seeing how people chose to live, being in Chicago and seeing how beautiful the city was. And I'd never really been here before. Like, and then I had a great interview. My interview was awesome. Yeah. And I was like, I could hang out with her all the time. Yeah. So one one key point to hit on like i don't know what it's like at other business schools if i've only gone here but yeah the, the whole joke that you'll see on meme accounts about like knowing what your friend's dad does like that that's just not here yeah at booth at all i would 100 percent agree and, and like that's been it's i mean it's funny it's probably not at most places i don't know maybe it is but it's it's definitely a meme that's out there regularly but it's not a reality here which no is cool. and i feel like people when they look at other business schools you know to me, the thought of like, oh, everybody's just traveling all the time. Like, yeah, people travel here, but that is not like we live in an awesome city. You could go down the street and have a great time. I don't have to go to Spain to have fun. So like I feel like people are just I would say more fiscally responsible here, um, but also don't feel the need to force people to do things to feel accepted. Like, I, w I mean, I don't feel pressured. I hope other people don't feel pressured, but I never feel pressured to be like, I have to do these things to be included. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that was awesome. And you mentioned too, before I cut you off, like you decided to do Startup Summer. And one thing that like is clear from hearing you talk about Turner um, has less to do with an indictment on Turner than it does an indictment on large institutions. Yes. Um, and so was there a a clear like explicit understanding in your head that you were gonna go small and you were gonna go to the startup route yeah well my life is a joke but I I came in so bullish telling myself that I would not work this summer that I would not recruit 
um, that I would go work at Polsky Center and work on an idea of mine because I had two years that I could take high risk um, and really give myself a chance to build some stuff. Like I've always had entrepreneurial ambitions. Like I'm always working on something, selling something, you know, doing something. And I was like, all right, I need to like actually like build something that's a real business on a side hustle. And I came in saying that I would not have an internship. And I literally told mom, like, I don't, I'm not worried about getting a job after school. She was like, are you shitting me? You sound ridiculous. And I'm like, leave me alone. I'm going to do what I want to do. But what's funny is that it took me doing what I want to do to give me the opportunity that I had this summer and the job that I, that I accepted. So like I said, I came in, I did startup summer. I wanted to be around data engineers, understand how like people built products and how to speak to those engineers and scientists. Did that. And I was just always working on my ideas. And so, you know, I'd sit in Harper Center and we would talk about our ideas, show you what I'm thinking about, show you my mock-ups, my prototypes, whatever. And when I moved from Atlanta, that was super black community, like all my friends were black. I'm in business school now. I'm back to having this like almost like high school again, this very diverse group of people. We look like the Model UN when we hang out, you know, being able to celebrate people for who they are individually. That was a big choice that I made when I got to business school. It's no more, hey, all white people or all these people do this. I look at everybody incredibly individually now um, for who they are as a person and celebrate them for those, you know, individualistic characteristics. And so I moved to Chicago. I'm on a different boat every weekend, having a grand old time all summer, you know, partying. And I realized people were drinking White Claws and Trulies like they were water. It blew my mind. I'm like, yo, people really love this seltzer shit. Why? I'm like, they're choosing to bring seltzers to our pregames over beer. How? How is this happening so quickly? It, it amazed me. Called my friends in Atlanta. Nobody knew what it was. They're not drinking it. It's not at the bars. It's not at the pregames. It's not anywhere. And so I had mocked up like an urban branded hard seltzer and I go, it's called Fang and I'd show it to people at school. And uh, luckily one of our friends, Nick, was like, hey, I used to work for ABI. They have this really cool innovation arm called ZX Ventures. You should really apply to their accelerator. He's like, I think they have something like an accelerator. It was the only thing I applied to. I didn't go to a recruiting conversation. I did not go to a corporate conversation. I didn't go to a recruiting event all last year. I applied to one thing because Nick said, I think you would be interested in it. And he followed up to make sure that I applied. Talk about a friend. Yeah. <laughs> and if it wasn't for him, I I would not be joining Anheuser-Busch full-time post-grad. Um, but I, I told myself, you know, my mom sat me down over winter break and she's like, you know what, Morgan? She's an entrepreneur herself and, you know, financially. It's, a, it's always, you know peaks and valleys it's a journey and she's like Morgan I don't want you to be an entrepreneur looking for a problem and I want you to take that seriously she's like sometimes you have to be with an organization to see opportunities that are worth pursuing she's like so I want you to be more intentional on going to work for a startup again and potentially looking at what entrepreneurship within a company looks like a, a company that is that does well an innovation, what that looks like. And so I ended up applying for the ZX internship and getting that. And was that conversation before the conversation with Nick or? That was right after. Okay. Nick told, that was about October, November, and I just sent off my like resume or whatever and then went and started their process. My mom was like, I want you to be, you know, I want you to consider 
these things um, because you're going to have your most earning power when you come out of school and you cannot mess it up. So I did that and I ended up reaching out to um, a friend who was a second year at the time, Julian, and he was working on this sports tech idea. I had wanted to connect him to Turner people just to get some perspective on what the media side could look like, what it could grow into. And so finally in January, I'm like, hey, Julian, come over, walk me through what you got, show me your most recent deck and let me figure out who I can connect you to. And I was like, hold on, I think I need to work with y'all. Like I actually, this is where my expertise is. Let me come on board and I think we should compete in New Venture Challenge. So I convinced him to compete in New Venture Challenge with his co-founder and I ended up competing with them in MVC and placing, which was awesome. Um, so real quick though, so that's, it's an awesome connection and a great experience, I'm sure, to go through MVC. Um, yeah. I intended to do it and then it's pandemic, everything else didn't follow through this year. Um, you had your own idea with Fang. How did you make the decision to set that aside and pursue Julian's venture and put that in front? Yeah. So what was interesting with Fang is I had mapped it out. I was an entrepreneurial discovery. Mark Tebby brought in uh, Jason Friedman, who founded Four Loco. Their offices are in River North, right down the street from here, actually. And I went to Jason. I pitched it. Um, and, you know, never really followed up because it was right around this time of the year. And it was just like holidays, finals. I never followed up. Um, and what I realized was that anybody and through my conversations with Jason and people like Nick, anybody can build a brand. That's not hard. I could get a, a, a drink made easily with enough, you know, a little bit of capital could get it made. The problem is distribution. And so it's like I could do whatever I want in terms of building a brand, but I can't get distribution because people like Anheuser-Busch and Molson Coors have all of the distribution shelves. So... I just was like, you know what, the the thought of me actually, when Jason kind of told me how long it would take for me to get a product in a market and what that would look like and how I'd kind of have to be all in, I was like, okay, I don't know if that makes sense right now, but let me go work on this idea with Julian so that I can actually work with the team where I'm not a founder and see what that looks like. And I learned a lot in that process. Um, but I told myself, hey, I may be able to work on this. I had gotten the offer from Anheuser-Busch with ZX Ventures. And I was like, hey, I'll, I'll work on that this summer. I'll see if I can at least start to plant the seeds and figure out how to do that. So it wasn't necessarily a trade-off. Like I'm, I'm actually more, now more than ever, more committed to figuring out how to build something like that. Um, low volume, I mean, low cost, high volume drink for the black community um, for a, a whole thesis that I've now come up with. But um, I, I wanted to compete and I realized that, you know, what they were building with Ruby was something special and that I actually could bring a ton of value to the team. And there was very other startups where I could really bring my actual career experience into, into the fold. Okay. Yeah. And, and so I get you're, you're viewing it all as a journey, which you should, right? Yeah. But still like time is super valuable. It's the most valuable thing we have. So setting yes. aside your idea for someone else's is a big decision yeah um and then at bush anheuser bush over the summer did you work on your idea or were you working was your job scope different than that yeah the way you pitched it initially is nick saying hey there's a thing yeah. for this so what's crazy is that in the b so the actual accelerator it's now changed but 
originally I wouldn't have even been able to build out my idea which I came to find out like at the end of the process they source ideas and problems from inside the company um, and then you work on building out you know whatever product brand service so say they had said hey we see an opportunity for a canned wine out of South Africa we would have went to South Africa and built that but because of COVID they changed everything to individual work streams and projects so you know I was very open with what I what I'm good at you know what I know and they gave me a really creative project which I'm so thankful for now uh, where basically they they had done a deal with Alex Rodriguez and Presidente Beer out of the Dominican Republic. And he became an equity owner in that business. It was the first time they had done anything like that. And he was like now the face of Presidente Beer. But the idea was that they could grow that beer in the States because it already is like owns a full market in Dominican Republic. But they figured they could grow it in the States. And so they said, hey, Morgan, what we want you to spend your summer doing, we want you to look at our portfolio our brand portfolio 500 brands and build a high level strategy for how we should even begin to look at our portfolio to discern which brands could potentially work for an equity partnership i'm like okay well this seems interesting but like if whatever end product i give is this even going to be valuable enough for me to potentially get a job one i was working by myself I mean, legitimately, like my project had no bearing on anybody else's work. So I spent the whole summer just working on my strategy. You know, how do I look at this? How do I learn about the entire portfolio? Educating myself, figuring out what tools I could use from class to help me build a strategy, <laughs> you know? So luckily I just taken managerial decision making and Anu Shah, I called him, I was like, hey, um, this is what I'm thinking. Can you give me your feedback and, and viewpoint? And he helped me build out what my strategy should be, which was pretty in line with what I thought it should be, but helped me really like break down this kind of scoring system and how to view this kind of big task. Um, and I spent the whole summer just talking to people because that's all that I do. So just talking to people across the X Ventures and across some of Anheuser-Busch's brands, trying to learn how they operated holistically. How did the whole beer market work? Um which brands get funding, which don't, how do brands grow, beer brands grow, where is beer going, right? It's like, what would be worth investing in? And, you know, 11 weeks goes by, I have my final presentation. Mind you, I'm like, okay, well, I did the best that I could do. You know, I don't know what other people have been doing all summer, but I've just been working in a silo. And I ended up having a VP of HR from global marketing in my final presentation mind you corporate works totally separate from the innovation arm and she says hey can we have a one-on-one -on -one? it's like my last day at work I'm like sure so we have a one-on-one -on -one and she says look our CMO of Anheuser-Busch Global every Friday has some time on it we have some time on this calendar to either give people a chance to interview um, or to go through you know things that people are working on highlights some work etc would you be willing to come on Friday? Mind you, Monday was my final presentation. Wednesday, I talked to her. She's like, on Friday, can you come and uh, do your full presentation? Also, maybe kind of interview. Um, she's like, they may ask you interview questions. They may not. Like, we'll see. It's like, okay. So I go do this presentation for the third time, you know, to a group of people that really know beer. They're not working on innovation. They're working on the brands. And, you know, I'm very... Uh, unapologetically myself 
So I'm, you know, doing my spiel, saying what I think is, you know, right or best based Still on my no learnings. Nerves. Still no nerves. I'm like, it is what it is. But, you know, as you know, when you're prepping for your MBA interviews and for your, you know, job interviews, you have your questions, you're prepared. First question out the gate that I get after my presentation from the CMOs. Hey, thanks for being here. All right. So um, tell me three extraordinary things that you've accomplished and that are tangible and do it quickly so we can ask you more questions. Mind you, this is right after I just told my accomplishments and stuff like that. Um, and I was like, oh, this is serious. Um, but that group who I was very, you know, honest about who I am, I didn't want there to be any for me to go back to corporate was going to be a big deal because I had told myself for so long I wouldn't do it. Um, but there were so many things I had to ask along my journey in that internship to figure out, like, do people really think innovatively here? Can people be challenged? Do the tenets that are important to me, the things that I want to be able to do, can I do them here? So I spent the whole summer really asking people questions like that, understanding their journey within the company, understanding, you know, how beer works, because it's super dope, but like, how does it really work? And I even asked uh, my VP of HR, hey, is this a group of leaders, the CMO and his direct reports, all his direct reports? Is this a group that likes to be challenged or not? Can I be myself or not? I need to know. And I was very much myself. Um, you asked that before or after? the Before. Meeting? Okay. And I was just like, let me know. Because if I need to like kind of tone it down, I will. But if I can be 100% myself, I will be. And I was. <laughs> I did. You know, I was. And they were the people that ended up offering me a job. So, and, you know, a lot of it, like I got to talk to the VP of Michelob, see the amazing sports culture content work that he did. So we got to have a connection. Like, it's funny how my, my background in a job that I thought that I didn't gain much from, right, at Turner, where I was like, I'm an assistant, I'm a planner, you know, I'm trying to make a way for myself, but it's really getting me nowhere. Being in that sports realm, people love it so much. It just gives so many opportunities for connection. So, and people kind of prize it in a way. They're like, oh my God, you worked in sports. But for me in this next journey, having an understanding of athletes, having an understanding of the sports world, having an understanding of culture, you know, how important it is and how like sports culture, a lot of it is around black culture, you know, but like really understanding how brands and advertisers and, and fans play into this whole sphere. Nevertheless, advertisers, sellers, merchants like an Anheuser-Busch, it has given me such a unique perspective on businesses. And hopefully now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to come into their global marketing team with this very unique perspective having worked in sports media um, and having a real passion for culture. And how do, we, how do we take products like beer and seltzers and cannabis products, et cetera, and make them talk to people that look like me? How? So it's been a very cool journey, but I, I never thought I'd be the one to have a job, especially not early in our second year, and nevertheless get paid to do something that, you know, I didn't think I could get paid to do. Um, like, I didn't think I could get paid working in marketing, but I'm going to be right there with the consulting folks, living my best life. Who would have thought? Not I. Um, and I'm getting to be in a space that I really love, but I would have never had that opportunity if I wasn't doing what I said I came here to do in the first place. And so what I like to say, 
when people ask me about my journey and now I've got all these people asking me about ABI and recruiting, I'm like, I can't really help you there. I can give you my views on the company. But what I tell people is be focused, but flexible. Be really focused on what you want to do and what's important to you, but be flexible in what that journey looks like. If I had been hardheaded like I was when I first got to Booth, I would have never had the opportunity to go do what I did this summer and to go back. Um, but because I was somewhat flexible in what that looked like, now I have an opportunity that I'm incredibly excited to embark on, you know, a, a journey to pursue. But wouldn't have had it without that. And quickly, kind of looking at that aperture, you, you went in to go work at the accelerator. That's okay. It's a corporate entity, but this is a, a slice of the pie that's that's very agile and focused on yep. innovation, right? Yep. You work on that, and then at the very end, you go pitch the CMO corporate. and corporate. <laughs> Who then offers you a job to join corporate, not mm -hmm. a job to go work in the innovation arm, right? Mm -hmm. So like, as you made the decision to accept that position versus coming back and pursuing, you know, something else, something else, something that's innovative, small, what were, what was your criteria? And clearly people are a huge factor in every decision you should ever make. Yes. The people you work with. Yes. Um, when it comes to like professional decisions, but what was that for you? What did it look mm -hmm. like? Did you, how'd you make the decision? So my biggest fear going through this recruiting process, or I guess my baby recruiting process was I did not want to be boxed into a title, which is why I never wanted to go through the recruiting process. I didn't want to say, oh yeah, I want to go work in marketing. I didn't want to work in marketing. I know it's what I'm good at. I know that's where I thrive, but I was like, oh, maybe I can do something else. I don't know what that is, but I didn't want to beatbox into a certain title. And so what was important to me was every conversation that I had with people at Anheuser-Busch, I talked to them about their journey and what I realized and recognized and appreciated. People, it didn't matter where they came in at, what role, they move you around very quickly. So if you kick ass in your job, they will move you to kick ass somewhere else. So if you look at even like the CMO, they pinged him they pinged pedro to go stand up zx ventures five years ago he crushed it they moved him to be the cmo it's people if they choose to stay within a specific function they choose to do that because they want to not because they have to so what excited me about that was i know that even if i come in in marketing i could end up doing whatever my heart desires at some point in time um and that was a big factor for me not knowing that I can move flexibly within the company if I do well, which I know I will do well. So that was a huge factor for me. Um, being able to go to a big city like New York, big deal for me. To me, that made the most sense as a next step um, in terms of life experiences was going to New York. And, you know, if I was going to do something, I wanted to be something that, that I could rock out on and I could rock out on beer. <laughs> so, you know, going to work for a company where I actually like their products, where they're doing really innovative stuff, not just in the innovation arm, but in the corporate side. And that being not forced upon them, but expected now was really exciting. Because for me, I didn't work with the marketing team. So I had to ask these questions <laughs> as I'm like giving this offer, you know, like it, I didn't get to really work with them. So it took me talking to a couple different VPs understanding like, how do they see this business working? And can I be great within that space? And what I realize is 
they believe that I can come in there and shine. And to have people say, we want you, and to be picked out from my ZX cohort and given a job, and them saying, no, we know that you have to be here so that you can make a difference in our organization. To me, like, that's what I want to do. I want to be the person they expect to bring change. And to know that I'm going to be celebrated for that, I'm sure I'll get some pushback, and I'm sure it'll be a journey. But they know exactly what they're getting with me coming on board. And to me, that's what excites me. I told them, like, I want to be a founder. At some point in time, I'm going to sell something back to ABI. So... You know, I want to have a sp- I want to have the space to do that. I want to have the space to create. I want to have the space to to be awesome. And if I can, then I'll come in here and I'll kick ass for you. You know, but I, I was very clear in my intentionality on what I wanted. Um, and from all my conversations, we seem very aligned on how I will be able to operate within the organization, which to me is really exciting. So. So you're gonna have agency you're going to have opportunity to grow and like everyone gets typecast to some depth or degree. Like it's just a part of life. Absolutely. Right. But it's going to limit the amount to which you're typecast early so that you can kind of pick eventually if you do specialize, you can pick that path or you can shape what that brand that. Right. I can, I know that I'll be able to in some form or fashion to shape my journey. Yeah. Um, And whether I end up staying there a couple of years or my career, if I'm speaking to consumers, if I'm, you know, building things that bring people together, I'm going to be happy. Which brings me to the next point, because we, we've talked a lot about the professional stuff and, and some other aspects, right, of things you care about. Yeah. But one thing I'd like to hit now is your decision to start a blog. And, you know, your blog is about the MBA experience. Yep. Uh, if you could just talk me through when it like it kind of came to the forefront of your mind and was it an immediate move from idea to action or did it take a while to think through if you were gonna you were gonna move yeah. forward with it so I had done a couple blogs in the past and I was thinking about how fast two years will be it's fast it's incredibly fast and I have a really shitty memory like, that's why I'm always a person taking pictures, taking videos. I'm very nostalgic. Yeah, I like, need to start a journal. I'm right there with you. Like, yeah. It, it just, it, I can't the time win an fleeting. argument. And it's not just because I'm, ju- I'm the guy in the relationship. It's also because I can't <laughs> remember. remember what happened. Exactly. Like, I, I defer to you. So I guess I lost. And I told myself, you know what? You hear a lot of, I feel like when you're applying to business school, you hear a lot of people give a lot of pieces of advice. And a lot of that is don't follow the herd. Right, like whatever you said you were coming to do, do it. Um, you know, don't get looped into going to consulting if that's not what you wanted to do coming in. Like it's gonna be very hard to watch all your friends recruiting and then getting the big checks. You've gotta be okay with whatever your journey is. And I I wasn't very scared that I would follow the herd because that's just not my personality, but I was scared that I could be swayed if I wasn't being honest with myself. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to set up this blog. You know, black people like myself, like unless you're an MLT or know about management leadership for tomorrow, like there's not really a lot of tools for us. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, I'm sure someone will find some benefit, but like I'm just going to write about my journey so that I can have something to look back at and maybe someone will find value in it. 
I did not think that it would be like my pride and joy of business school. Um, but it has very much become like what I am most definitely most proud of um, at Booth is MBA the blog name to be changing after school. But, you know. Yeah, the journey continues, right? Yeah. Um, so you did it to add value. And, you know, this is. I guess we can go ahead and mix the topics. I wanted to, to just kind of hear what drove you, but since they're they're commingled, you wanted to help the the black community learn more about the MBA process. MLT is great, and yeah. you mentioned Management Leader Tomorrow. It's a good organization, but one, like it, I think it's limited in the amount of people it brings in, and yeah. so democratizing that information is tough. Yes, and two just like a lot of these organizations, like it's one organization, yeah. not everyone's gonna know about it. It's, it's cookie, well the thing is, they've got a process that works, right? And for me, you know, it wasn't just about black people, but I wanted people to see that, yes, we do have black people at Booth, one. Um, two, that we have awesome people across the board and that, you know, when I would tell people I was going to Booth, they'd be like, oh, all the quant nerds and i'm like i mean yeah there's like some quant nerdy people but like people are dope like people have personality people are social and that is not a good representation of who we are as a community and a huge part of that has to do with you know the booth name and it only being 10 years old like there's certain things that are a reason why regardless of us being a top five school we are not given the same clout as a stanford harvard wharton there's reasons for that and part of that is not putting money behind marketing i mean it's a whole deal but I did not want there to be an excuse why people could not celebrate the awesome personalities and people that make our community special. Because to me, that's the most special part of our community outside of the Nobel laureate professors and all that kind of shit. It's the people that really make our community wonderful. And it's a community that I look forward to having 40 years from now. Um, and so, you know, what's what's my most read features are always my boothies of booth features, telling people's backstories. And it is unbelievable to see and hear where people have come, where they're going, why they're going to where they're going. Um, some are heartfelt, some are sad and traumatic. Some are just like, I didn't have a hard life. I came from, you know, decent life. Um, to me, everything is a decision. You know, what do I really want to do? How do I maximize my potential? What do I really care about in life? For other people, they have outside, you know, externalities that are that are forcing them down certain paths and they've got to make it work for them. And I want people to know our community stories better internally and externally. So I've spent a lot of time crafting and curating these stories so that we have something to look back on, something that I hope to continue post-grad. You know, like I want us to be able to to celebrate each other for a long time. And it's easier when it's when we're connected. So, yeah. Couldn't agree more. I mean, impetus for this is, is super similar. Uh, and for you, what have you derived the most value from in doing the blog? And what do you think from your perspective and the feedback you've received has been the most value that others are deriving from it? Yeah. There, there's nothing that has brought me more joy in the past now, not year and a half full, but a little over a year since the blog launched. When people reach out to me saying that they've reached out to someone because they read their story and they couldn't believe how much their backgrounds were aligned or they want to learn more about them or just feel the need to introduce themselves for real. 
there's nothing that brings me more joy. And mind you, people have people from all walks of life reaching out to them after these posts go live. But what I love is when people internally are like, I have a whole new respect for this person. I thought I knew them or I've seen them, but I had no idea that this was their story. And you just have a newfound respect and appreciation for that person and hopefully a new connection. Um, so that's been awesome. I think what's hard is, is being really consistent and you know when you're creating content, it's exhausting and it's, it is like another job. So you've gotta be consistent. Um, you've gotta decide if you're gonna spend money or not on, on something that really you're doing because it brings you joy, right? So like the same way it's like, do I invest in the good microphones? Do I invest in the expensive premium layout to make my blog easier to read? You know, that's, these are questions that I have to ask myself, but at the end of the day, to have people within our community know me and celebrate me for telling other people's stories is so much more valuable than anything that I could be doing. I mean, I chose not to hold leadership positions at Booth. And I was like, if I'm not gonna be a co-chair or whatever of whatever, or student government president, what am I gonna, what can, how can I lead in my own way? And I was like, if I can do it through here, then I would be pleased. And I feel like it's given me more, almost like leadership opportunities than like anything I could have done. Um, internally within the school just because I get a lot of visibility which is awesome but at the same time I'm hyping up everybody around me and that brings me just way more joy so totally agree but and your blog is more than just the boothies at booth though yes and so what else are you doing on it we do admissions tips so everything from how to pick between the GRE to GMAT to my literal laundry list of how to attack your interview to how do you make that final decision once you have your offers. Um, I do a feature now called Built by Booth, highlighting entrepreneurs and their businesses that they've started or are in the midst of starting. Um, I do book reviews. I'm like an avid reader. So every month, all the books that I've read, I do quick little fun reviews on them, literally like not even a paragraph but give people an opportunity to go hopefully put a new book on their shelf. Um, and then I do like op-eds every once in a while. So whatever I feel like, I just will write it. Yeah, so how do you read books and do all this at the same time? Because uh, I gotta tell you, <laughs> going to class, I don't know if I've read for fun in two years. Oh my a gosh. Year. It was, reading was a commitment I made to myself a couple years ago. So every year my birthday, I write out kind of like my goals for the year. And I used to read a lot, but in college, you know, like I was an English and history major doing all that kind of stuff. I didn't have time to leisurely read. So I kind of like fell, dropped the ball. And then I finally was like, you know what? Let's get back to reading a book a month. Then it became like a book a week. And now it's sometimes it gets a little out of control, but I stick to about a book a week for the past two or three years now. And what I do, I read on my Kindle. I read all my books for free from the library through Libby. Um, so there's no like, kind of like, oh, do I really want to buy this book? What if I don't like it? Like, I don't have to, I don't have that fear. Yeah, but and, then there's also no sunk cost for putting it down. It's like, ah, oh, well, you know, I didn't pay for well, it. Well, here's the thing. When you think about the time that you may spend bullshitting around or watching TV, which I do all those things all the time, most books only take four to six hours to read. The majority of them, not like Barack's book that I'm currently reading, but like most books are four to six hours. If you think about breaking that up, 
You read for 30 minutes in the morning or 30 minutes at night, you're going to get through a book in a week and a half. Um, and for me, it's my quiet time. So I feel like I'm in a constant attention economy where it's just like, if you look at, if I were to pick up my phone that I haven't touched in a couple hours now, uh, I don't even, yeah. yeah, I luckily I can't, it doesn't stop. All right. So for me, when I pick up my book, I just try to lose myself in it, even if it's just for 15 minutes. Um, I'm just going to have to learn how to read faster, I guess. I'm <laughs> so slow. It's terrible. You know, it's a good, it's a good skill because there's very few spaces where you have to give your full attention all the time and actually get benefit back from it. So um, instead of skimming a Wall Street Journal article, which I'll sit and read or skim that too, this is my time to really make my brain focus. And we don't do it anymore. There's like a whole book called uh, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It's really disturbing. You should read it. Yeah. Okay. No, I will. And like, I, I mean, if you have time, I'm happy to keep talking about this or oh, yeah, if we, we want to do talk? it some other okay no. so i'm an admissions co-chair for the fg i mean one of the things was i felt super lucky to get into booth mm -hmm. um and to have the opportunity to learn at a top institution absolutely and like look i think that the information you learn in business school can pretty much be learned anywhere agree or like not at business school yeah you know there, there are avenues for 100%. all this stuff um but to learn it from great professors is nice What's better is to learn it from super smart people that are in class with you and yes. in your study groups and that like know this stuff and can be like, hey, dude, like here's how this works. Yeah. Um, which has been great for me. So when I talk to all these vets and try to put the ladder down for them and help them out in the same way you're trying to do with your blog, I have my pitch, right? And so I kind of want to pressure test it, test it against you to see how right or wrong I am with okay. like the guidance I'm giving out and kind of how you think about it. Cause I've read your blog, but I haven't studied every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I recently saw an article, I think you did an interview with like an admissions consultant or somebody in that space. Is that, is uh, that correct? With uh, MBA schooled. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you're getting a lot of people who are, who do this for a living or experts and you have mm -hmm. opinions on this. You've thought about it a lot, I guess. I mean, you're the guest. What What is your approach? What do you think about the MBA process and application process for the people who are thinking about applying? Yeah. So I have a couple things that I think people struggle with um, in general, especially when they're going through programs like an MLT where they're just trying to cookie cut you. But that my mentor, Malum at Turner, who I call like my guardian angel, my other father, that, you know, he he really helped me with my application process. Um, because sometimes it's really hard to look at yourself, right? I could take somebody's personal statement and fix it up in 30 minutes, an hour, and it be ready to go. But for me, myself, I was working on mine for months, trying to get it just right because I knew it was the only thing that was going to get me specifically a chance to interview. And there's a couple big things that I outline on my blog now. I was like, you know what, fine, I'll share it. Um, that I think are incredibly important to consider as you do your application process. And it comes really most importantly in your right, in your personal statements and questions and your interview. Your test, like, you know, you got to do fine on that. But the stuff that's more personal. And so we call it triangulation. And this is a concept that it's not about you. It's not about you. This MBA process is about everybody that comes into contact with you. 
And so for me, I think about it like this. One corner, it is about me. What does getting an MBA mean for me as a person, as, you know, for my life? Um, What does that really mean for me and why now, right? You got to answer those. Second piece is, what does getting an MBA, what do I bring to this community? Who am I? Who will I be? What will, what value do I give? Why the hell should I even be here? Right? Because, you know, the big conversation when you're young is why would you be getting an MBA at 26, 27, 28, 29, 30? Like, you're old. Why are you there? And you realize that it's because we've had experiences that people that are 22 don't have. We bring a different set of values and understandings. And you need to explain to these people what value you bring to the school. They knew who I was going to be if they brought me to Booth. And I think I've been that for them. But they had, you know, I had to be very clear and this is who I am. I am a person that's going to build community through conversations and it's going to have some type of good consequence. And this is how I see myself doing that. I was very clear on that. And then the last piece is, what does you coming to Booth mean for the world? Because yes, you want to come and you want to get a bigger salary and you're going to get paid and that's great, right? Yes, make your money. But what does you coming here, how are you going to impact the world by being in a position of power? Because my, my view is that if you're coming to a booth, if you're coming to a top school, you will be in a position of power. And I think I just now, over the past year, I'm understanding the value of giving someone a job. How powerful that really is to say, I pick you, not them. And I, I think it's really important for people to explain, like, I see myself having this type of impact in whatever, in, through whatever industry I'm going to be in or through whatever entrepreneurial endeavors I'm going to pursue. And I feel like if you're able to give those pieces in your essays where it's not just about you, where you're being introspective, but also totally reflective on what you giving this oppor- being given this opportunity means, um, in your essays is great. You've got to do it. And people miss it. You know, like I remember in my booth thing, I talked about how I use reading as a tool for networking now. And like, I have my Boothie book club at school. People read, right? But I told them, I'm like, I read because then I could connect with people on things that I normally couldn't. So if someone's reading the same book as me or we've read the same book, we have something to talk about. We have something to connect on, whether that's fiction, nonfiction, business, whatever. That's one of my relationship building tools. So like, I was very clear on them. Like, I will use this as a tool when I'm in business school. And I have, you know? And then when you come to interview, my biggest piece of advice. So like when people want to do mock interviews, I don't do mock interviews because I'm not a good actor. I'm just not good at role playing. But I will help them do their first three to five minutes of their interview. And what I tell people is if you can get the first three to five minutes right when they say, tell me about yourself, then you're set for the rest of the interview because you should be able to answer those three questions in that three to five minutes. Quick background on who you are what you coming to school means for the community and who you're going to be and why it's going to change the world because you got accepted. And to me, if you can do that, then the rest is cake. Then the interviewer is just asking you about yourself and life experiences. And they're not asking you, hey, Chris, so yeah, so why now? Why Booth? Why now? Okay, well, like, what do you see yourself doing? Like, if I give you that in five minutes, the rest of the interview, we get to just know each other. Because you already know at a high level why I'm here, what I'm doing, and who I'm going to be. I think that's a great framework for thinking through it. Yeah. And I'll, I think this is complimentary. I re- really like the way you put that. And tell me if you think this is as helpful 
or and where this fits in because this might just be that bottom triangle piece that, mm-hmm. that that apex of you versus the other two pieces but i think they all interplay and so the way i've been telling everybody to think about the business school application process is that when you were submitting your application you are trying to communicate your brand and i i say brand instead of build your narrative or tell your story or any of that they're all good things to say but i think right. the brand is the most important for a few reasons i agree Reason number one is that the ad comms are reading a ton of applications. Yep. And when they close the page on yours and open the next one, sure, they have a rubric they filled out, but what are they leaving thinking? Are, I'm Chris the what? What's my brand yep. that you attached to my name? Yep. Same for you. And, and so that's part one. Part two is that you are going to have different stories you tell and do all those stories align. Align. Yes. <laughs> and like, and from a different perspective, tell the same Thing about who you are which is reinforce your brand absolutely and then the the third piece to me is that there is a matrix that every business school is kind of every school any selection process you go through they're trying to fill out and across the top of that matrix in my mind and this could be completely false i made this shit up <laughs> but like is what you've done and so are you an investment banker are you a consultant are you a private equity person did you work in entrepreneurship were you a military person or yeah. are you, were you a teacher? Like what, what's your background? And so like, just like you said, when you're 22, you don't have a background. Yeah. I mean, you do. And people have really interesting stories and have done incredible Listen, things, but that those different, those it's different once you get another aspect, which is a career, yep. or some, some aspect of a career under your belt. But then the rows of that matrix are your personality type. And so, you know, however many there are, I'm not a behavioral psychologist, but I, I would imagine that, you know, if you just look at like the initiator, the challenger, yep. the innovator, the different kinds of people that you have in a room, like it really sucks if you have a room full of challengers. Yes. You'll never get anything done. Yep. But if you only have collaborators, you're not going to have somebody that the initiator to start the conversation. So you don't Absolutely. want that either. So, you know, when you're building your brand, I think, you you know, it's already decided what you are across the top. Like, yeah. that's based on your experiences in your job. And, and, you know, I'm sure that other diversity characteristics come into play, male, female, international, domestic, right. black, white, Hispanic, on down the list. Yep. But like the, the other thing you can control is, is what your archetype of personality is and your brand. And so I like combining those things completely together. completely agree. And that's that's why I tell people, if you triangulate and you're very clear on those things, they should be able to walk away with exactly who you are and who you want to be. Because you're coming here to make a change. Yeah. You know, and I, what I try to tell people when I help people with their personal statements, I'm like, I will sit there and I will tell them, I was like, this told me nothing about you and who you are gonna be. I'm like, so here's how you can shift it. I'm like, sometimes it's just a simple shift of perspective, but it's like, it should be, if I were to read your personal statement, I should be able to exactly say, who are you, why are you here, why now, who will you be, where are you going? And it should have some type of continuity, you know, continuity. So I I look at it as a story. Like, and if you, if you go to my blog and see the personal statement, I mean, mine is, mine is a little over the top. Like it's a whole soliloquy because my background was very, uh, disparate. Like for me to really figure out what is it that brings my story together? What is compelling about my life? 
You know, that's really hard to do. I had only done, I hadn't done much. I've, you know, had small wins in my little communities, but what does that really mean? And for me, like, that's why, you know, I, I told stories that really explain why I see things the way that I see them. I mean, it took me, and, and you know, a point that I like to make is, if you're not being in some ways pretty emotional and reflective in your process, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Like, it was painful for me to sit down and say, what the hell have I done? Who do I want to be? Why did I think I wanted to be an orthodontist my whole life? And it wasn't until I sat down and did my essays that I realized it wasn't the practice of dentistry that I loved. I was obsessed with my orthodontist practice because he had built a community around something that people hate. And it blew my mind. We couldn't wait to go see Dr. K. It was exciting. He built a space. I got to see him interact with his, his employees in the morning because I had to go there super early before going to make my trek up to school. And I so appreciated it and was in awe of what he had built. But I've always been running businesses. I just didn't realize it until, you know, post-college. Well, and beyond that, like, I think the, the, the thread that has woven throughout the story you've shared with me today is that your focus is on community and now like the beer and beverage space is just another place to form community for you absolutely and it's a a a mechanism you're choosing to attack that same space that you love like the triangulation i literally put it on my final slide of my presentation so i was interview i always introduce myself at the end of a presentation so that people are focused on what i'm actually saying and not who i am And I literally had on my last slide, it was my face in one corner, uh, people drinking in another corner, and the world in, uh, or no, it was me, A-B-I-Z-X logos, and then people drinking at the top around the world. And I was like, this is what this means for me as a career choice. What, you know, what I think I will gain from being at a corporation like this. This is what I think I will bring to this community, the way I think, who I am, how I will always push for what I believe is right. And I'm, I'm always going to be vocal, you know, and my background will bring value to this community. And ultimately, I'm going to change the way that people drink. And I'm going to make us more inclusive around the world. And I'm going to build products for people that are not currently being introduced or welcomed into our space. And that was how I ended my, my pitch for myself. Because to me, if they could if they could see my value in those different spheres, then how could they tell me no? How could they say no? And it's the same way with your interviewer. How can they say no when you're saying, I'm going to build this, you know, bring this to this community. I'm going to change the world because I had this opportunity. It's really hard to say no to that when someone gives a concise argument for their value and not just in terms of their own person. Yeah. You know. Well, I think that's brilliant, and I hope people use it. I, um, I hope so, too. I hope so, too, because people think the interview process is some crazy, you know, freak out experience. It's like, no, you get the first five minutes right, you're golden. If you mess up those first five minutes, then your interview is going to take the whole damn hour trying to figure out who you really are. When you could have given them a beautiful little picture right up front. Yeah, Absolutely. And moving from that, like what is, you know, everything's, we have about six months, two quarters left in school, right? Time's flying. 
It's been a great experience for me. I'm sure it has been for you. What's been the best thing about Booth to you? And then what do you want to see change the most? I have found the most value legitimately amongst my friend group. I I tend to not stick with a specific group of people. Um, and I, I look at my networking community and I think about all of the opportunities and experiences that we will experience together post-grad not just now so to me I've just found so much joy truly in in getting to know people like I love I love spending time with my friends it has it's just awesome there's no other point in time in your life where you will have two years to just kick it it's ridiculous but like really just kick it um because what I'm constantly thinking about is when I do stand up, whatever it is that I stand up, who do I want to bring with me? Yeah, who's the team? Seriously. Yeah. Um, so, how did you curate your friend group? And you've talked a lot about it. I mean, obviously the blog's one way yeah. and, and there are different avenues, but I, I think Booth specifically is a place where you have to do it yourself. Yes. Um, and that's, it's a double-edged sword, right? The fact that you can pick your own classes, flexible curriculum is great, but it means that the cohort of people isn't you don't have a shared experience with 60 people on a daily basis yes because you're not forced to take the same classes with them and that's the way a lot of schools create community yeah you have this group whatever you call it Mm -hmm. our case a cohort you go to class with them you lament about the professor you do the homework together you're on the same schedule so you have the same off time so you will hang out together and then like that's the forcing function for community yeah but here you like you pick Literally. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting because when I talk to people about their experiences, some who have loved it, like me, who can obsess over it. Some people that are like, I hate this shit. Like, I feel like I've wasted two years. I don't know if I really like the people. Um, But I think it depends on how you look at the opportunity. For me, like I said, I look at everybody individualistically. I don't care who you run with. I'm going to judge you on who you are <laughs> um, on your own. And then I could decide how I, you know, how I feel about the rest of your group. But I, I look at people with this individualistic viewpoint. And I just have, I have just floated around everybody. So like, for example, if I have people, well, before COVID, if I had people over, everybody was invited. If you came to my house at any point in time, it was whoever. Um, And I would just focus on like, I would join groups for study groups where I didn't really know the people or try to join a group where I may know somebody, but I don't know the rest of them very well. Um, I legitimately just spent a lot of time in Harper Center when we were allowed to hang out. And I just sit on my YouTube, I'd just be sitting in there. People would be like, oh my God, you look so happy and you're not stressed out. And oh my God, recruiting sucks. And I'd be like, look, I'm just here to, you know, smile and talk to y'all. That's it. And that's what I would do. And so with those experiences, you know, or opportunities to just quick chat, it was very clear to me like who I connected with, right? Or who I wanted to spend time with. And I would just try to at least make space to hang out once in a while, because it's really because some people, you know, they'll find their group and that's who they kick it with. And that's just not me. So, you know, even like us getting to go to Michigan and hang out for a bit, like that was so much fun. And there were some people on that trip that I didn't really know well, who now I spend a lot of time with. Right. But that's only because 
I, I see myself as a floater. So I try to walk into a space and if there's a, a person or two that I connect with, great. I'll try to get to know them a little better. I'm not trying to be friends with everybody, you know, acquaintances. I feel like a lot more people know me on a first name basis than I know just because of like my blog and because like I'm always on Slack posting stuff in all students without shame. Um, there should be a little bit of shame, just saying. Like, there there should know, be a little bit of shame. shame. Um, but it's, I try, I try to just be open to meeting new people and if I connect with somebody, then that's great. Yeah. So I'm not in the no new friend stage yet, you know, because I'm with you. You never should be. You should always right. have like a home base, right? Absolutely. But like, but even my home base is bizarre. I mean, my home base is like four guys who will have their own home bases, but they're, they're my home base, you know? So, and it's funny watching groups of people come together. Like for me, my whole life, I've always had friend groups from various places. I have never had, the one time I did, it was a cluster. Oh my God, never again. But I, so for me, I always loved a good reason to bring people together. So like my birthday was always a great reason to bring everybody together and people could meet. And so for me, what's funny is when I was in Atlanta, we had a lot of Vanderbilt alum, had a lot of friends like that I had, you know, just from wherever in Atlanta. And people meet some of their best friends, like through being at my house together. And I got to a point where I was like, do I really want to keep mixing friend groups? I'm like, I don't know if this is really beneficial for me. Then I got to invite everybody. And this is too many people. It's too many people. Exactly. So now, you know, I try to be more intentional on, on which groups of people I mix. But at the end of the day, like my groups are so mixy that as long as I, as long as I find joy in spending time with you, you're welcome. Like you will always be welcome. I will never be like, no, you can't. Like, I don't know. I just, I, a lot of people, I have a lot of care and love for for various reasons. Um, that's why you hear me say like, yeah, that's my best friend, and that's my best friend, and that's my best friend. And my roommate, boom, thinks it's hilarious. He's like, how many best friends do you have? And I'm like. If you're very close to me, if I know I can count on you, you're probably going to be one of my best friends. So, <laughs> you know, it's like not not very um, tailored. But I don't know. I find joy through a lot of people. And friendships are what's most important to me because they'll always be there. And that's what you've gotten the most of out of Booth. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Something else I, I'd be remiss if I didn't get your perspective on. And I really... Mm -hmm. Am interested in your answer is you've talked twice now about how you judge everyone as an individual and you like to take that approach i mean at the end of the day the individual is the most exclusive minority it's it's a it's a, it's a minority of one absolutely and how do you think about that and layer it in with what is clearly a huge passion of yours which is the black community Yes. And forming community and sharing that community, you know, inside and outside the black community. Yeah. You know, it, it's a it's a constant battle in our community, because like I said earlier, you sometimes you want space where it's just us. Um, and then to me, the way that I have viewed this experience and I've said it very matter of factly within, you know, our black community meetings and things like that everyone will be in a position of power it is our job 
as a black community to make sure that all of our friends know us so that when people like us come to ask them for a job, they give them more of a chance because they're comfortable. And that is really important to me because I have friends who I know have never been to a black person's house so they came to mine while in business school. I, I, I think about how you may one day be in a place where you're looking at names and you're looking at resumes or whatever, looking at a recommendation and you're like, hey, I, I'm willing to talk to them. They remind me a little bit of Morgan. Like that's my hope and dream is that we can break some serious systemic problems and corporation problems because we have more leaders coming out of our school that are okay with people that look like me. And not just okay, like, hey, yeah, nice to see you. But like, know us intimately, have been in our homes, understand our stories, and us the same with them. We can't do that unless we look at people individualistically, unless we invite people into our spaces and homes and in our community. We can't do it unless we do that. So that's why it's so serious to me. Because every single person in our program will be doing something of value. Whether that's big value, small value, doesn't matter. But they're going to be decision makers. So I am consistently trying to figure out how do we build bridges so that people can understand and accept others. Not just because of the color of their skin, but for who they are as a person. Understand that our stories are so much, so similar in whatever way. Um, but sometimes you need a bridge to make people feel comfortable. And so for me, with the black community, you know, it, it's it's a regular conversation. Do we open up our Thanksgiving, our Friendsgiving? You know, like, well, we just want this to be a place where we could talk like this and not have to code switch and that kind of stuff because that's very real. Um, but for me, I'm always like the more the merrier. If I got 100 people in my house having a great time and this is not normal to them and they're listening to the music that we listen to, they're understanding our culture, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of where, where my viewpoint comes. So that's why I'm consistently trying to understand people's individual stories. Because if I do, then I have a greater appreciation for you. You have a greater appreciation for me, for understanding and appreciating your story. And hopefully down the line, you're going to make better decisions on behalf of people that look like me because you know me. That's my hope. And, and looking at that, when you think about, you know, situation, whatever, down the line, 10 years from now, however, however you, you bring it up is the, the thought that you would like people to view the answer is yes. And the answer is both, but is, is the focus more on sharing the black community with others or, or giving people the opportunity to see the black person that they're dealing with as an individual vice, a member of the community, if that may. If the, that... Yeah, no, I mean, definitely the latter. I mean, okay. yes, we want to invite people in our community. That's great and all. But I, the same way where I don't want to say all white people do this. I don't want people to say all black people do this or all black people can or can't do this. Um yeah that's the the second half of that is exactly why because like 
The fact of the matter is there's a lot of people that may have never had a black friend in their life prior to Booth. Whether it's because of the ecosystem that they're coming from, whether it's by choice, you know, with it's access, it's availability. You know, if there's no black people around you, you can't have black friends. <laughs> but now you have an opportunity to, you know. So I I take that ask of being a being a booth student, being a part of the community very seriously. It's the same way where like, you know, my um my small group cohort, whatever they call us, or my squad, my squad was mostly Asian. And when we were in the middle of lead, which is our leadership training, and I have my friends that are from Hong Kong, China, first generation Taiwanese from South Korea telling their stories and what it's like to either be first generation or what the working culture is like or family culture is like where they're from. That was incredibly eye-opening for me because like you see, you may hear it, but to have someone that you consider your friend say, this is what is normal in my house and this is what I'm trying to change or this is why I act or work a certain type of way. It is humbling. You know, it is really humbling. So I feel like people need to have more real conversations, real relationships if we ever want to really see a more inclusive community because we have an inclusive community in my point of view at Booth. But this is not real life. It can one day be real life, but it is not real life outside of our walls. So how can we push this inclusive community outward? Well, and, and to a point on that that dovetails on another point you've made. You, you've talked a lot about positions of power and how we'll all be in them. That doesn't have to be global, right? Exactly. Like the whole sappy, kind of ridiculous quote of like, you know, what? how does it start? I'm going to butcher this thing. Something along the lines of like, you know, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you're the world. Yes. So like, hey, look, we're like, we don't live on a global scale. Like no. you interact with the people that are around you yes. in your job, in your life, like down the, your neighbors. And like, that is what matters. And we're in a world now where information travels so that you know what's going on on the other side of the planet. And it feels like, I mean, we've evolved for that information to be an input to our survival. Yeah. And so you put it through that process, but the reality is that what you influence, most people, is going to be the world around you. Absolutely. And that sphere of influence, you will have power, absolutely. And that matters a lot more than the global sense yes. of power for well, most people. Your right? world is what you make of it, right? Yeah. You, so, you know, like, so when I say like the triangulation, what do you mean for the world? It doesn't necessarily mean the globe. But like for your world, what does that mean? What are you going to touch? What are you going to impact? Right. Because it's really people that are in these smaller communities that are able to make the most impact. And that's the, the point I'm making out of that, I think. And I think you're making too. And I kind of want to check to make sure I'm not assuming mm -hmm. is that you can recreate something like Booth or you can recreate this on a micro scale. But that's all that really matters. Yes. Like, eventually you want the macro to change, but right. it only really happens. If it's happening at the micro level. Which is why, you know, I take this shit very seriously. You know, like people think it's like, you know, fun and I just talk to people and all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, like in my own way, I am trying to break down barriers. Yes, we're all here. Yes, we are on a similar footing in terms of opportunity, right? That's great. But at the end of the day, if people that I consider my friends leave these 
leave these doors, these walls, this program, and continue to make poor decisions in the workplace, then I have failed. That's how I feel. You know, so I... I take it very personally. If I ever, I mean, I don't know if you read that blog post that I did on uh, Dear Friends, Please Don't Be the Next Amy Cooper. When I was trying to figure out how do I talk to our peers about how someone like Amy Cooper, how that happens and what really their job is being in this program, how to be a better leader. You know, it's stuff like that happens all the time. But she should not have been a product of our community. That's unacceptable. So how can I make it so that my friends understand, my friends, quote unquote, understand that every action they take has a reaction, has an impact. Nevertheless, in the real world, but especially in the workplace, there's things that I remember from my time at Turner that make me sick. And I didn't even have a bad corporate experience. My mom laughs all the time. She's like, I cried all the time. And she did well. She's like, you have no idea what it's like to be in a shitty corporate, you know, environment or experience. You had a good experience. And I did. But there's certain things that were unacceptable. That some of them I stood up for and some of them I wasn't in a position to do so. So, you know, I want, if I know someone and they say, hey, I have, you know, I'm the VP of here and I do these things. If I were to ask people that work underneath them how they're treated, what their experience is, I want that shit to be the creme de la creme across the board. Regardless of where they're from, what they look like, what they do. You know, like be a better leader, be a better person. You can't be that unless you're friends with people that don't look like you. And hopefully your organization will not look just like you. That's the hope. <laughs> That's the hope. But that won't be that unless people feel, you know, I, I feel like when you when you think about, I mean, this is not the same as when you're a vet, but when you enter regular corporate life or work life, the question is, are you a good fit? Are you a good fit for our organization? What the hell does that mean? If no one here looks like me and no one has my shared experience, how could I possibly be a good fit? Yeah, so I, I mean, I have an opinion on that specifically. And the opinion on that would be, what is the goal of the organization and are you mission driven? And so are you a good fit should really be about, am I aligned with achieving the goal of your organization? And then will it work culturally? And I think that one dimension of that is shared, like similar background or experience. And, but I think there are so many more important dimensions because I don't care where you came from if we're aligned on the goals and the ethics that it takes to get there. Right. And so, I mean, and that's probably a bias to the military because look, we take people from everywhere. Right, and they get shit done. And and there's a sense of, hey, for the soldiers, you're gonna go to basic training, you're gonna get kind of stripped down to the studs and we'll rebuild you up inside our culture. Yeah. And so you're a good fit. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your background right. was, what you look like, what your religion is. You're a good fit because you're going to be, I mean, indoctrinated into our culture. Right. And that doesn't mean that there's not a benefit to the diversity that comes from all of those factors. Right. It just means that are you a good fit means we're going to take that hill. Are you on board to do it? Right. And here are the, here's the culture and the ethics we're going right. to take, we're going to achieve that goal through. Yeah. 
And so like for me, that's kind of my perspective on that question. I think what you're getting at though is when people ask that, that's not what they mean. Yeah, I mean, when people, mind you, there's different levels to this, but people wanna know, literally, are you someone that I could see myself hanging out with? But if your circle all looks the same and I look different, and that's a different question. That's right? tough, right? Yeah. But that, but this is part of this is a real underlying question when people internally after an interview saying, "Is she a good fit? Can I can can we see her coming out for a drink with us after work, or no?" Like that's a huge part of it, and I feel like, you know, I, it, I've literally, <laughs> I've literally never thought about it that oh, way. Yeah. Oh, that's um, very very normal. But that's because the thing is, like you said, you're getting skilled and trained, and if, if you're willing to fight for that overall mission, then you're gonna, then you're welcome. But that's not the case in a lot of organizations. So, so it's tough. But you want people like I. I just want people to be able to see a little bit of someone in their friend group as they're going through these interviewing processes because it just takes the apprehension, the concern, the fear down, all right? There's a reason why people gravitate towards people that look like them. You're comfortable. Well, humans go for the familiar. Yes, and so absolutely. If, if that is the most familiar thing and it's it's an externally visible signal, you'll go towards that. If there's another thing that's most familiar, like you see another Vandy person or someone that worked at Turner. Your relation. Or you had a shared experience because you know each other. Like that's familiar. It's the same. Absolutely. It's the same concept. Right. And so whatever the default, um, I think, a level of segregation based on familiarity is, people will automatically do that. And we have to actively work the thing is if you're familiar is what our day-to-day at booth looks like you should be able to make pretty uh objective decisions you know you should be able to say look at the lay of the land see your options but if your view is only one thing then you're gonna make very subjective decisions so well that's the whole point yeah like trying to figure out what are tools or frameworks that i can put my toolkit to make better decisions exactly and like I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to achieve that with this podcast, but that's my hope overall is like to give people those tools and a little bit of like empathy or sympathy for other other people's backgrounds. If Um, you, what I what I wrote in that Amy Cooper piece was, you know, help people be more empathetic. If you have some empathy, that goes a long way. You can't understand if you're not empathetic. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm looking for empathy, like work on your emotionally te- intelligence. That's what I'm always striving to work on is emotional intelligence. Like, yeah, I could be smart and I could like do the work, but am I emotionally intelligent enough to make the right decisions, to treat people the way they want to be treated, communicate the way that is best? Um, and I think there's always room for growth in EQ. 100%. Like nobody's ever done learning with that. No. You haven't experienced everything, so you can't. Possibly, no. Yeah, sharpening empathy and develop, deepening it, I think, yeah. is, is always good. And it helps to know people's stories. Like, you can't help but feel empathy when you learn the decisions and the reasons be- behind decisions and why people are where they are. Like, all of us are here for different reasons. You know, we all hope to, to gain something from this experience, to change our lives in some way. The question is like, are you doing that once you're here? And are you being honest with yourself and what you want that life to look like? Um, Because that's tough. 
Well, I think those are pretty profound words, and uh, we've been doing this for a while. So, <laughs> I know, Rose. I'm like, you know what? How about let, let's call it there? I think that was great. That's um, perfect. Thank you so much for doing this. Where's Always. the blog so people can find it? www.mbatheblog.com. Very simple. Cool to be in the show notes. And uh, hey, I really appreciated this. And oh, I appreciate you having I mean, me. I've known you for over a year, learned a lot more about you. So thank Hi. you. Thank you for having me. I almost want to wave.